Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, baby. The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. I just want to apologize to Derek's mom and Aaron's mom and my mom. And I'm sorry to everyone. I was very naive. I am so, so sorry for everything that has happened. Because in spite of what Aaron says now, it is my fault. Because it was my project. And I insisted. I insisted on found footage that was all i had oh, okay <laughs> recording's off to a oh, great God. start you fucking you guys- your video froze up and i was like oh what the shit's happening oh no it's a real yeah hell witch. yeah yeah keep it's all some real up. spoopy shit already <laughs> here we go we're doing it fucking live y'all could you hear me though yes absolutely because i thought i crushed that if i can just say so yeah, myself. You did. oh no you did cool. great and i'm totally keeping all this in fuck it because yeah. that was too good to be true for us recording this shit about found footage so hell yeah, yeah and i was gonna make a, like a lame joke about like oh no guys outside i hear a mid as fuck found footage horror movie but that was better <laughs> hell yeah all right well yeah welcome awesome. everybody to our Halloween season of Spook 2023 episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, the movie monster boy Aaron, and my cowardly co-host Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, and discuss just how scary they are for horror movies and horror movies like. Hell yes, we are jumping into The Blair Witch Project from 1999 as our final Urban Legends Season of Spoop episode. Yeah, I will say the very first moments of this movie as they're like going around that middle of nowhere town talking to people, that felt really relevant to the theme of our Season of Spoop this year. And was quite well done, Yeah, if I must say so. It was a solid opening. Yeah. Otherwise, I have some thoughts about this movie. We'll get to that later. (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be interesting to talk about because this is one of those movies where, like, all of the bullshit surrounding this movie and its release and its marketing and its impact, there's, like, way more to discuss in terms of that stuff than, like, the movie itself in a lot of ways. Yeah, what actually is on the screen. Yeah, yeah, we're going to jump into that in a little bit, but as always... Hi, Lauren. How are you? Welcome back. Great to have you on this episode. 
Thanks, guys. I'm doing great. Unlike my monologue, I am not afraid to close my eyes because I wasn't really that scared by this movie. If I'm being yeah. honest. Also, I watched it on a plane, so we can talk about that. And that's wild because typically whenever you watch stuff on an airplane, there's something about how like your brain is just sucked into that so much more because you're concentrating on it in a different way. The recycled air is fucking with your brain and there's just dopamine and serotonin hitting in weird ways where you just tend to enjoy movies a lot more than you should. Example I can think of is my wife fucking loves the Disney Aladdin movie, the remake, and only because she saw it on an airplane and admits like (laughs) if I saw this in any other format, I would probably have hated it. So yeah, it's an interesting way to check this out. I don't know about you guys, but I chose to watch this on my 12 inch CRT TV with a built in VHS player. Oh, you went full blown. So I had to plug up Uh, another external VHS player. No, I'm I'm fucking joking. Okay. I was like, Um, (laughs) but that's basically the best way to watch this movie in the year of our Lord 2023. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, pretty much. Cool. Well, yeah. Before we uh, get into the movie, we are going to go ahead and jump into some horror recommendations for this week, starting with. Lauren, our guest, have you checked out anything else horror-related in the last several weeks, months, etc.? My first recommendation uh, is one that is from months ago. I meant to talk about it on our last episode, and I think I just completely blanked. Alternatively, I might have talked about it and just forgot. Forgot. (laughs) So, yeah, (laughs) if this is just rehashing that, uh, my bad. But the first movie is called A House on the Bayou. Okay. Where are you and your dad staying? We're staying at this old house on the water in the middle of nowhere. My mom's here with us, too. They're not getting along. They mean to you? No, they're fine. You're making friends over there? Shut up. Can I help you? Hi there, I'm Isaac. I was just stopping to invite you and your family to dinner. We just brought the food over here to cook for you. It's just how we do things on the bayou. So can we come in? Of course you can. That note you wrote me? What did you mean by that? The devil is watching us all the time. Some of us invite him in, some don't. Well, no offense, but I don't believe in the devil. The devil believes in you. Oh, girl, you got a gusher. I want them gone. It's time you face the truth. Don't worry. If you're righteous, you'll survive. You're crazy. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You don't gotta be frightened. I'm not the boogeyman. It's on Amazon Prime, and beyond that, I know nothing about it, except that I enjoyed it a lot. It's a movie about a couple with a teenage daughter who have kind of like trouble in their marriage, and they go to this house on the bayou in an attempt to kind of fix it, quote unquote, and they meet some kind of creepy backwoods swamp type people. 
but kind of the Hollywood version of the swamp type people. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> they turn out to be uh, menacing and kind of sinister. The plot unfolds in a really, really interesting way. It's not, you know, a sort of instant classic horror movie, but it was a very, very good Sunday afternoon horror movie, okay. which is my favorite kind. Kind of creepy, kind of spooky, but you'll be able to watch it and be fine going to sleep that night. Oh, yeah. So sorry if I said all of that before on the last episode. No, I, I don't no, think you did. You did and oh, okay, cool. Do you know if it took place like in Louisiana or near New Orleans or anything like that? Just from the way it looked, I don't think it was. It wasn't near New Orleans. And I didn't really get a Louisiana vibe from it, too. It is in like a very old house. And you kind of got the sense that this house, at least the exterior of it, had probably been used for some other stuff. But yeah, it was a really, really good quick watch horror movie. I do love the idea of Hollywood swamp people. So I'm fully expecting Gambit from the animated series. Oh, yeah, there's a, a heavy accent. You know, the word grandpappy is used a whole lot. Uh, <laughs> There's a general store that sells veal cutlets. It's an interesting sure. <laughs> version. <laughs> of the South, yeah. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, especially for a Sunday afternoon. And on kind of the note of Sunday afternoon horror movies, another film that I watched on two separate planes, I watched 50 minutes of the movie, then my next flight didn't have a TV. So three weeks later, on a different flight, I watched the remaining, I think like 45 minutes, was a movie called The Boogeyman yeah. from 2023. Yes, it's based off of a short story by Stephen King, which I have not read, but sounds a bit more interesting than what the movie turned out to be. Uh, I did really enjoy the movie. I think it might have been, you know, like you were saying, the atmosphere of partially the plane and also they were night flights. So it was kind of when you're dark and you're in the like cocoon of the plane. But it's essentially about, they say, the creature in the closet who comes for your kids when you aren't looking. Yeah. It's one of those horror movies where no one in the movie responds to anything in the way that a real human being would. <laughs> yeah. It's a teenage girl and her dad and her mother passed away a year before. And she gets bullied for it. At first, I was like, oh, these are the typical Stephen King psychotic bullies. But they aren't. The whole teenage plot isn't in the short story. You know, the father character isn't as fleshed out as I kind of would have liked it to be. The story isn't the best, but it was pretty enjoyable. I didn't regret watching it. And it has some pretty cool creature design, I yeah. think. It was pretty well done. A good, again, Sunday afternoon movie. You're the second person to bring this up because we had Shelby Scott on and she does Scare You to Sleep podcast, which is a horror storytelling podcast under the banner of Bloody Disgusting. She went to the premiere of it and she got to write an original story and present it on one of her episodes as like a tie in oh, wow. to the movie and story universe. That's very cool. Yeah. The concept and the creature is really good. I think they could have just written a slightly stronger story around it. Yeah, this was one where Derek and I read the short story because it was in a Stephen King anthology that both of us had checked out. Yeah. And the short story is literally just the scene where the David Desmalkian character goes to see the therapist 
and tells him about, oh, I murdered my whole family. It was because they were seeing this boogeyman. You know, I didn't believe my kids, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. May have been me. It may have not been me. It was the boogeyman. I don't know. And then the guy mysteriously disappears again. That's all there is to the short story. It was interesting to me how they expanded it. I also like the two actresses that play the sisters. Yes. Sophie Thatcher has been on Yellow Jackets. She's great there. Vivian Lyra Blair was Little Princess Leia in the Obi-Wan Kenobi show. And just overall, I thought that movie had a lot of fun mood and atmosphere. It's the same guy who directed Host, which was the like COVID Zoom movie, if you saw it. This is one of his first blown out full features. I had a good time with that movie. I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah. It was one of the things where like I wanted more out of it. Yeah. In terms of the story and the world. But mm-hmm. for what it was, I thought it was a fun roller coaster ride. Despite it being this movie centered around trauma, it was not a movie that you felt drained by the end watching. Just had enough of that roller coaster kind of quality to it. I agree with you though. The like teenage girls bullying her for grieving the death of her mother was one of the more ridiculous things <laughs> in that movie. Just being mean girls because your friend's mom like died and she's fucking sad about that. Yeah. <laughs> Come the fuck on. I'm not going to lie. There's a part in the movie where someone gets slapped and it's maybe the most satisfying act of violence <laughs> yeah. I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to stand up and cheer even though I'm on this plane. Please slap them again. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of interesting. I noticed that it was PG-13. Uh-huh. And I wonder, I don't know that it really suffered for being PG-13. There's some movies I kind of see where it's like, oh, okay, you know, you maybe should have made this R, even though it loses you that teenage demographic. Sure. I was actually surprised because I didn't notice the PG-13-ness of it. Well, this is one where, like, for it being PG-13, again, in America, Mm -hmm. typically, we're going to let violence slide. The movie's fairly violent. There's still some pretty brutal shit that happens. You know, you may not see everything explicitly, but it's pretty fucking brutal Mm -hmm. because it's a creature. Ultimately, there's lots of shotgun blasting this thing to pieces unrelentingly, whatever. It's a creature, so it's fine. PG-13. I, you know, they could have added some fuck words into it. Yeah. They could have added unnecessary sex scenes. The things that would have given this movie an R, I don't think it needed. At all. Like you said, it didn't feel like anything was missing, I guess. Was Cobweb a PG-13 horror movie as well? I remember you brought up Cobweb like a couple episodes ago. Cobweb was definitely R. Cobweb had much more explicit gore and language. I remember you saying like there's a whole scene where like some fuckers get eviscerated. So I was wondering. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then the the other thing I'm going to talk about. Uh, I watched the Cabinet of Curiosities series on Netflix. Cabinet of Curiosities is a show that I've always wanted to make. In this anthology, we gave ownership of each episode to the directors. Action. Each of the episodes has a whole world. They present you with different delights. Some are savory, some are sweet. You get a surprise from each of the bites. We wanted to create beautiful, practical creatures. 
with all the artistry that goes into creating a great monster. We achieved some of the most remarkable images in the series. With Cabinet of Curiosities, what I'm trying to say is, look, the world is beautiful and horrible at exactly the same time. Yes. And I was kind of disappointed, to be honest. Really? I'm dying to watch it. I I have not got around to it yet. I'm dying to watch it. Okay, so I think that it suffers from a lot of what Netflix series and movies that I've seen, not a lot, but tends to be a problem with Netflix, is in the editing, where they will simultaneously... It's too long and too short. They (laughs) include a ton of extra stuff that you don't need, but then they leave out so much stuff that would have been interesting. They're very sleek. The production design is, of course, really good. They do kind of suffer, I think, from trying to make something that has such a high production standard, but is a period piece. Sure. Most of the episodes, if not, I think actually all of them take place in past periods, but you don't really get quite immersed into it because it's a bit too clean. It was, it was pretty good. I think each episode either should have been 30 minutes or a movie. All of the stories were kind of weirdly, again, compressed, but they would do things like we need to establish that this character is a racist asshole. And they could do that in one scene and then spend the rest of that 50 minutes doing things that were more interesting. And instead, it's like, we need six separate scenes to establish that this guy is just a racist asshole. (laughs) Sure. Okay, we get it. Yeah. I remember when this first came out, the big thing was like, there were so many like poor people and each one was going to direct a different episode. And some of them are written by Del Toro. Some are written by other people. David S. Goyer did one. and. Did you find that certain episodes were way better than others, depending on who the director and writers were? Well, actually, there were three I wanted to kind of spotlight, if I could. It wasn't one of those things where I regretted watching it, but I did just find myself bored more often than not, uh, which was kind of a bummer. Each one had a separate director, and they did do a couple of stories from like Lovecraft. The very last one, which was pretty good. And one that I actually enjoyed quite a bit was called The Murmuring. And I'm pretty sure if I'm remembering correctly, The Murmuring was from a short story by Guillermo del Toro, or it was just outright written by Guillermo del Toro. It was actually written by uh, del Toro, and it's directed by, of Babadook fame, Jennifer Kent. Yes. And the star, S.E. Davis from The Babadook. But Andrew Lincoln was the other star in that. From Walking Dead. Also from a really good version of Wuthering Heights by the BBC. Uh, (laughs) That's neither here nor there. Uh, Starring Tom Hardy. It's worth watching, I will say. The murmuring was really good. It does feel very Del Toro. It was really evocative of um, Crimson Peak to me in a lot of ways. yeah. Yeah, like a ghost story where the ghosts are... Not necessarily these malevolent evil forces. It was very compelling. I think I cried a little bit, but that one was really good. I think 
the first episode. It was called Lot 36, starring Tim Blake Nelson. Yeah. That was another one where when you're looking at the series called Cabinet of Curiosities, and even with a ton of just different horror properties, what's really interesting, at least to me, is going to be the objects and the lore. Even, you know, the opening of each series is this cabinet and then like all these objects in a hallway behind glass and they're all spooky. Like there's a Fiji mermaid, which never comes up in any of the stories. And I was genuinely disappointed. Here's a puzzle box that if you solve it, you get pleasure and pain unknown to humankind. May or may not have been included. Yeah, yeah, they had all these objects. And I think what Lot 36 did that I wish they had again spent a lot more time with it is there's a ton of allusions to the background of what a lot of the objects are. It's about a guy who bids on a storage unit and gets the key to the storage unit and finds a bunch of spooky stuff and finds a lot of stuff from World War II and Germany. They do a really good job of just letting the implications of where these objects came from just kind of hang in the air. Sure. But they don't spend enough time with it. It was just a bit disappointing. That again, kind of the focus of each of these was a bit off, but that one was really quite good too. And then the one that I can outright say was very, very good was the third episode and it's called The Autopsy. And I think what really helped it is that it's a compressed story and it takes place over one day. It's about a coroner who is called to help look at the victims of a explosion in a mine and it's a little bit mysterious his friend is the police chief of this small mining town they're not quite sure what's going on so the guy gets there in the evening and is going to perform these autopsies overnight and he is going through each of the bodies trying to figure out the mystery of how this explosion happened and kind of what it's connected to what's really going on it is extremely good. It's actually genuinely kind of upsetting. I don't want to give anything away, even though I, I'm trying to remember. I think it was pretty obvious. You figured out pretty fast what actually is going on in the story, but it was genuinely quite scary. With each of these episodes, there were a couple nights where I'd watch two because it was like, oh, okay, we can keep going and watch the next one. With this one, I actually had to turn it off and process it. Hell yeah. It had some really good body horror. It was just so well done. So I would definitely, definitely recommend The Autopsy. Cool. And then Lot 36 and The Murmuring as well. And, you know, the others, if you enjoy them, for people who like Lovecraft, there's a couple uh, Lovecraftian type episodes. One that I think was just an illusion, but another one was outright from one of his stories. I think it's worth watching, but I was overall just kind of a bit let down. But those are my main recommendations-ish. I think I kind of crapped on all of them. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. We often come in with stuff we've seen that is hard and not feel super strong about it, but want to talk about it. That is how it is. Not everything's going to be 10 out of 10. Derek, what have you got for us, my guy? Speak for yourself, because my two are 10 out of 10 in my mind. (laughs) I'm coming at you guys with capital H horror this time. I have two recommendations. Both of them are Japanese horror as well. All right. So that might be why I like am so high on them because that is just a facet of horror that just works really well for me. The first one is a game, 
and it's an actual game that was originally released back in 2008, only in Japan, only on the original Wii. And it just got a re-release earlier this year, back in March. They did the old HD remake to it. They redid the controls to fit modern controls and take away less of the waggle stick that you get from the Wii. They dropped it on Switch, PlayStation 4 and 5, Steam, Xbox One, and Xbox Series X. It is the fourth Fatal Frame game, Fatal Frame Mask of the Lunar Eclipse. This is a game I have been wanting to get the freaking port to America since 2008. And finally, they answered my prayers 15 years later. Unlike the other Fatal Frame games, this one doesn't have any dubbing. It is all still in the original Japanese, but they added English subtitles. And frankly, I kind of prefer it that way because as much as I love the fifth game, the dubbing in the fifth game is pretty mediocre at best. This game kind of fucking floored me with how good it is. It might be my favorite Fatal Frame game just behind the second game because the second game is kind of a horror masterpiece in my opinion. But this one was so good and did a lot of stuff so different from the rest of the franchise. So start off, the story is set on a fictional island called Rogetsu Island and it focuses on the main character of Ruka, but you also play as two other characters. You play as a detective who was involved in the events that happened earlier years ago on this island, and you play as Misaki, one of the other girls who, like Ruka, was also on this island uh, in the past. So they're basically being treated as little kids for this phenomenon called Moonlight Syndrome. And the Moonlight Syndrome, no one's sure if it supernaturally kills you or it's like a curse that's passed through people like around the island but it basically operates almost like a virus it causes people to forget their own identity forget their own faces they stay away from mirrors the only thing that seems to treat them and help with the symptoms is bathing in the moonlight a serial killer abducts four or five of these girls including the main character in misaki brings them underground for some kind of ritual and the detective shows up to rescue them shit goes wrong of course this being a fatal frame game they were conducting some ritual yeah. to appease the curse, to appease like the doors to the underworld. The fucking ritual goes wrong, and now, boom, we have this cursed island that no one leaves, everyone dies on, and now everyone's trapped as a ghost on. And the survivors, the, the girls who escaped from the detective, two of them die under mysterious circumstances, so the survivors go to the island to figure out what's going on and try and figure out the mystery. And then also the detective follows them to sort of keep track of them and also figure out like whatever happened with the serial killer and there are parts of his memory that are also missing and you go from there okay for those of you who don't know the fatal frame story the basic premise of fatal frame games is you are like an otherwise very unassuming most of the time little girl trapped in like a place where there's murderous spirits everywhere who are trying to kill you you have a camera called the camera obscura 
which can actually exercise ghosts by taking their pictures. That's the premise. Literally, you are exercising ghosts attacking you with a camera by taking their pictures. It is such a weird premise. Pokemon Snap for demons. (laughs) Pokemon Snap for demons. There have been five games. The first three were released on the PS2, and then this one on Wii, and then Made in the Blackwater was Wii U, and then blah, blah, blah. Mask of the Lunar Crypts. So the reason why I'd say this is possibly my second favorite in the series, I love the story, the imagery of the full moon, and this all taking place on a secluded island, and most of where you're exploring on the island is basically like a hospital and kind of an insane asylum that's now like dilapidated and ghosts are roaming everywhere. The ghost designs are, of course, range from the ring girl to, I don't know, just any Japanese style ghost you can think of. A lot of times you're being attacked by like nurses and doctors, ghosts, other patients. An interesting mechanic that's in this game is that some of the ghosts, when you get their health down far enough, they basically like bloom because they were like victims of this moonlight syndrome and their face becomes distorted. You can't really see their face. It's all like a very weird visual distortion effect that's really cool. And they become hyper aggressive until you can finish them off. What's really fascinating also, too, that sets this one apart from the rest of the series is there are really no random encounters. All the ghost encounters, there's less of them, and they all are much more telegraphed, and they narratively make more sense. Because in all the other okay. games, especially in later chapters of the other games, you get to a point where like you can just get randomly attacked by ghosts. And in this one, everyone seems to like, serve a narrative purpose. And granted, you'll encounter the same lower-level ghosts. They'll attack you multiple times throughout the game because they're lower-level ghosts. But then you'll encounter like ghosts that are a very specific character and maybe only fight them once or twice through the entire game. But when they show up, there's a reason for it. It was very oppressive. And that's kind of wild to say because all these games are very oppressive and haunting and fucking scary. Even more so, it, it just felt every corner you turn, you're about to run into something like you shouldn't. It felt a little more claustrophobic than other past games. Like when you're just going down the hallway of this hospital and you're going into other patients rooms and you don't know if you're going to get attacked by their spirit or not some of the patients were just innocent people that just happened to die from a tragedy other patients were fucking psychopaths and their ghosts are equally as terrifying it deals with a lot of themes of mental illness and even the ethics involved in medicine and and this is kind of a touchstone in a lot of horror survival games are like discovering notes you learn more about the story reading through notes you find throughout the game that characters have written. Control was a big game recently about that, but yeah. the Fatal Frame games have always had that. I, I read through every single note I found, and it was fascinating. There's all these little subplots you find out of the doctor doing these fucked up experiments to try and fix this Moonlight Syndrome through science, but the science he did was also just arguably more fucked up than just trying to like cure it through supernatural means. Then you have other parts of authority and child kidnapping involved throughout the storyline. It feels pretty dark. I mean, all the Fatal Frame games are pretty dark, but I don't know. This one just kind of stuck with me a lot more. The main character, Ruka, she felt just as innocent and just as, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Like fragile or whatever as other protagonists from past games. But there's something about her like where like no matter what's going on, she's really there to like, figure this out and she presses forward she is guided through wanting to know like the mystery and what happened to her memories and everything else 
the detective is actually a lot of fun to play as because he plays differently than the other two characters. Instead of having one of the cameras, he has this moonstone flashlight that can like stun spirits. Okay. His whole story is really cool because he's basically chasing and you're not sure if it's the ghost or the real person of the serial killer who like originally abducted the children. I just I dug it. I, I loved it. I think it's a phenomenal horror game. Like I said, it's out everywhere. If you are a Fatal Frame fan and you haven't played it, absolutely go play it. I liked it more than Made in a Blackwater, the fifth game. I might like it more than the first and third game. Maybe it's just behind too. I actually want to play it on hard mode so I can get the secret ending. Yeah, I, I'm so glad that they decided to port this. And I hope they eventually make a sixth game. Because these are genuinely some of my favorite horror pieces of media ever. There's so many things about it work. I just can't sing the praise. And granted, I know it's not for everybody. It was a 10 out of 10 game for me. It has 91% on Steam right now with over 900 reviews. So it's universally acclaimed. I know you mentioned it earlier, but is it on PlayStation? Yeah, 4 and 5. Okay, it's cool. digital only. And granted, the physical copies are region free, uh, so you can technically play them, but like you can only get physical copies, I think, through Play Asia, but digitally you can get it on the PlayStation Store or wherever. My collector's ass and also just wanting to like support the franchise bought it digitally and I got a physical copy from overseas just to have as a collector's item. And this is one of the best in the series. I was very impressed by it. Cool. Moving on, we're going to go back to our old boy, Junji Ito. Okay. I finally have read his last great work. So a lot of people point to the three greatest Junji Ito stories as Uzumaki, Gyo, and Tomei. Tomi. Tomei is how I've always heard it. So I looked this up because I know I was going to fuck up pronunciation. There is kind of an argument going on of what's the actual proper pronunciation of, of the character. And the two most prevailing ones are Tomi, Tomei, and then also Tomie is another one. And I looked up a few like YouTube book reviewers and they all use different pronunciations. So like, <laughs> yay, I'm going to go with Tomie because that was the one that was the most common one, but it's spelled T O M I E Tomie. Yeah. Junji Ito. This is his <laughs> other like big story. I would say this one is better than Gyo. And maybe just behind Uzumaki as far as his best works. But this is still pretty fucking good. The original run started in 1987 and lasted all the way till 2000. He was still writing stories. And he even had a story with this character show up as recently as 2018. I bought the Viz Media Complete Deluxe Edition hardcover. You can still get it. I'm seeing it right now on Amazon for $20. That is a hell of a steal. It's big. The hardback is nice as fuck, and it is a huge manga. It's a collection of all the Tomie stories. It's really damn good. I recommend it right up top. The premise of Tomie, some of the stories have multiple parts. Some chapters will carry over from past chapters, but for the most part, there are all these collected standalone stories that kind of loosely are based off each other and tie into each other surrounding this one Japanese teenage girl named Tomie. And it's quickly revealed through these stories that Tomi might not be human. No one really knows what she is. She has this biological ability to regenerate. But when I say regenerate, I mean in the most yeah. Junji Ito body horror, like fucked up way. It's great. Fucked up imagery shit melts your brain whenever you see images of it. And apparently when he wrote and illustrated this character, he was inspired by the phenomena of a lizard regenerating its tail. Like if its tail gets chopped off. 
or the idea of when a worm gets cut in half, the two sides will become separate entities. And you quickly find out that among her abilities are like, say she gets chopped to pieces and there's only like a blood stain left on the floor. That literal blood stain can turn into this fucked up tumorous growth that eventually becomes another Tomie. Uh-huh. Say you transplant a piece of her hair into your hair. Her hair will literally grow into your brain until she takes over your body. Say you inject some of her blood into a baby. The baby literally grows up into an adult Atomie, like overwrites the personality and person that that baby was going to be. Chop off a limb. If you don't burn the limbs, each limb will grow into a different Tomie. Other fascinating thing about her stories is she is almost like a succubus and that whatever man comes across her becomes obsessed with her and will do anything for her. But as it goes on, they eventually get to the need where they love her so much they actually want to butcher her and murder her on purpose. And she seems keenly aware of her own immortality and her own abilities throughout this. And Tomie, the character, also is not a good person. She is super manipulative, fucks with people on purpose, goads losers and basically incels into killing her, manipulates people against each other all the time, gets super upset when people like don't pay attention to her. So like not only are you dealing with body horror, but you're dealing with all these themes of murdering women and people just spree killing and all of this. And there's a ton of themes going on, a lot of sexual themes going on in this. I think I read somewhere that he originally was writing this. He wanted it to be his story for Japanese teenage girls to finally have their own horror story. But then he made this fucking like body horror monstrosity story. Yeah, there has certainly been a lot of criticism about this story of his being particularly misogynist in a lot of ways. Specifically just, again, how the Tomei character is, in a lot of ways, just this collection of negative female traits as kind of envisioned by angry men, essentially. Yeah. And, and that's kind of part of what Junji Ito was saying in later interviews when faced with that criticism was like, she, in a lot of ways, is a reflection of how these awful men view women. And so yeah. she is kind of an embodiment of mm-hmm. exactly what they're expecting her to be to their own demises, essentially. There have been more recent analyzation of the story of it actually almost being this, I don't want to say feminist, like, I don't know if that's going quite to that level, but there is this idea of this isn't a criticism on women at all. And yes, Tomie, the character, is this evil entity, but it is more focused on men literally ripping each other and her apart to get some kind of satisfaction that they think she's denying them. There's so many layers to this. I don't know if all of it's handled the best. Some of it feels a little problematic, but I do think there is definitely a lot to say about this. And I do think the underlying intention and dialogue he's trying to create is something that should be discussed. Yeah. So quick question. Okay. So each time some part of her body can like regenerate, does it create like a second being? A second Tomie. Okay. So it's like reproduction. Okay. Because here's my thought. Does it do anything with periods? No, there actually is no story with periods, surprisingly. Not that I can remember. Okay. Because that's my first once a month you have an unfertilized egg. And I would imagine that if a strand of hair can do something and a drop of blood can do something, you have an unfertilized egg and a whole bunch of blood clots. 
So it kind of seems like you would very quickly end up with a whole bunch of Tomies just kind of <laughs> running around the world doing yeah. her thing. And then all those Tomies would presumably also have periods. One, I haven't read it, but two, it sounds like the intent did kind of morph. But if the original intent was to do something for teenage girls, you know, I think Carrie did this best by opening with a girl getting her period uh, and having this really traumatic event with it. But it kind of seems like that's a huge missing piece, especially if it's for teenage girls. And a lot of Ito's work as well, not just this, but like in general, he purposely leaves a lot of stuff out things like that you would immediately be like what about this because the entity of tomie like this isn't a spoiler she's never explained she just is she's just there she's this malevolent entity that kind of just ruins everything around her on purpose to the point where she Mm -hmm. even wants to destroy her own copies sometimes she's also just like if this is going to be too much of a hassle i don't give a shit kind of as well she wants to be worshipped but then at the same time she doesn't want things to turn into a hassle She's just the absolute worst characteristics of not even just a woman, just a person in general. Hmm. Just the idea of she can control men and control their lust and desires, but then it always ends with the men eventually wanting not just kill her, literally butcher her into pieces, thus creating more Tomies and furthering on her immortality. And that's never exactly addressed as to why she's like that. Yeah, I could see that. It it could be one of those things where it's like, oh, I'm going to leave this ambiguous to kind of create a mystery. This might just be slightly cynical. I think it might just be that men don't think about periods that much. Yeah, I mean, it could also be something uh, as simple as that, too. Yep. Whereas women think about it a lot. Shout out to my iPhone, which will send me alerts like, your period will be any time in the next two weeks. I'm like, that's incredibly helpful and yeah. specific, iPhone. So accurate. Thanks. So I guess this just got weirdly personal on the podcast. But uh, but no, but like, you're right. Like That would be interesting. You know, and I mean, he, the door's open because, so Aaron, this is for you. The last mention of the character is he did just a, a quick four page crossover arc. With Soichi, the kid who practices voodoo and bites nails. Oh, God. A little stinker character. It was like a little short story called Soichi Possessed, uh, released in 2018, where Soichi's older brother is talking to a younger version of a Tomie, and it tells Tomie about all the mischief that Soichi gets into. It basically serves as a prologue to like this larger confrontation between Soichi and Tomie, which he hasn't really like expanded on that, but I would love that. Tomie and Soichi are probably his two most reoccurring and memorable actual like villains in any of his stories. Because like Uzumaki, there's not a villain. Gyo is there's not a villain. But yeah, that's it. Tomie and the fourth fan frame game. Those are my picks. Hell yeah. All right. Well, I've really only got one thing to talk about. Partly it's because this one thing has kind of dominated the majority of my viewing time lately. But Heather and I decided to check out the Interview with a Vampire miniseries that originally aired last year on AMC. I offer, for your journalistic pleasures, my life story. So, how long have you been dead? The year was 1910. My business was desire. Let me introduce you to Mr. Lestat de Leoncourt. I know who you are, sir. We're destined to be very good friends. I'm assuming you only met at night. It's New Orleans. Days are for sleeping off the previous evening's damage. That's your thing, then? You like to watch? 
I've been watching you for some time now. I can swap this life of shame. Swap it out for a dark gift. Let the tale seduce you. Just as I was seduced. There was a boy. He was my murderer, my mentor, my lover, and my maker. A very strange enchanted boy. It was as if I could finally receive the secrets of existence. Your eyes. I could search window. I was not yet ready to hunt, but desperate to feed. It's best to let the food come to you. You're not welcome in this home. This is how it has to be. I don't want to kill people. You're a vampire. I could not save myself, but I could save her. She'll be what? A daughter. We're a family. She is poisoning you against me. You two have each other. Who am I supposed to love? This is not a life! You took my life! together 10,000 nights, 100,000. Ready to begin the adventure of our lives. My companions in immortality. Was it as horny as you were expecting it to be? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it was as gay as I was hoping it to be. It was as gnawlins as I was hoping it to be. It was yeah. kind of delightful in every way. It was just a giant fucking Creole pineapple glazed ham in the best <laughs> ways. So this is currently on Max. And it's fully uncut, question mark. I don't know how the fuck this show ever aired on AMC. I don't know that it aired in its entirety on AMC. I I have no idea, because just what is cable? It's 2023. Does anyone hang dong? That's the most important question. Um, as much sex as there is in this show, you know, I don't recall actually seeing really anything beyond a lot of butts. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That sounds right. But buns of all stripes, right? So it's based on the Anne Rice novel, obviously, and it's a miniseries remake. You know, this is the second adaptation. There was the movie in the 90s that is now generally pretty beloved with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt and Kiki Dunst. This version is by showrunner Roland Jones. He did a lot of Weeds, Friday Night Lights, Life in Pieces, The Exorcist Show, and Perry Mason for HBO. So, like, he's been in TV for a long time. But it's interesting because this is his second foray into horror. The Exorcist TV show from several years back was very much a, like, strange, oddball, what is this kind of thing. But there was a lot of really genuinely interesting kind of cool things that came out of that show. Way more so, I would say, than maybe any of the Exorcist sequels for the most part. Even the third one? As much as I like the third one, the stuff that has anything to do with exorcisms or The Exorcist, the first movie... It's so tangential. That movie's great on its own, but it really should have just been William Peter Blatty's Legion, right? Which is what it's based on. It's like based on another book of his that's mm-hmm. kind of in that same universe. 
Anyway, this version, first of all, really seems to only adapt the first half of the book. They are definitely playing around with the timeline a little bit. They're definitely stretching things out and expanding things in more interesting ways. Jacob Anderson from Game of Thrones, he plays Grey Worm throughout that show. He's also an overlord. He is Louis de Pont du Lac in this version. Oh, mon ami, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he is the like French Creole pimp, no good, ne'er do well, who kind of falls in with Lestat, right? This mysterious Frenchman who shows up in New Orleans, played by Sam Reed from Anonymous 71, Limehouse Golem. And then the majority of the story is set really kind of at turn of the century and then kind of moves forward in time from there. So it's not quite as Victorian, I guess, as the original 90s movie. I'll be honest, I have not read the book. I'm very intrigued to actually finally tackle the book now that I've seen this. I have read the book. The book actually spends a lot of time in the Victorian era and other eras. Yeah. So it's not as far back as that necessarily. I think partly it's a little bit easier and maybe cheaper to art design and production design for that era than like the Victorian era, you know, especially since they did shoot a lot of this in New Orleans. They shot a lot of this in Chalmette on sound stages that they built. There's kind of this one to two blocks of street facades that they put together that were period. Works very well considering I've seen too many period shows at this point that are made now where like they will build the facade of one building and then literally everything else around the actors is green screen and it looks green screen in a painful way. Mm -hmm. You know, as much as people love fucking Bridgerton, that's a show that's kind of egregious about doing that kind of thing. This show definitely feels tangible in that great way. You've also got actress Bailey Bass playing Claudia. Beyond this, really, it's just been her whole fucking career has been in the Avatar sequels. She's making two, three, four, five, all those movies. And then the present day framing of the story, where like the journalist is going to interview Louis and get his entire life story and all this. The framing device of this is really cool because in this version, they already met. They already did this interview in the 60s. And so now they're catching back up in modern day as the journalist is now old and everything is a completely different dynamic between the two of them. He's had this entire career and all the ups and downs that come along with that. And yet Louis is still here. Now he's living in Dubai in like a crazy fucking mansion penthouse thing instead of in San Francisco. And there is the history of last time I came to you, this did not go well. Do I really trust you to be telling me the truth now? Hey, things that you're telling me now are different from what you told me back then. How should I believe what you're telling me? Like, it's interesting how it does play around with the dynamics between them. And there's some good reveals throughout the show that kind of turns some elements on their head a little bit. But the older version of the journalist, Daniel Malloy, is played by Eric Bogosian. From talk radio, Dolores Claiborne, fucking Under Siege 2. But he was recently in Uncut Gems and Succession and Billions. And he's fucking great in the show. So it's like really interesting 
the dynamics between all of these characters back and forth. I generally thought the performances were all very good. I can't say that all the Nala's accents are fucking very good. <laughs> There's a lot of fucking, oh, mon ami, going on in the show. So some of that's not great. But the production design is fantastic. The score is great throughout the entire thing. It is, again, unapologetically full-blown, out there, gay in a way that the 90s movie was just tiptoeing around way too much and not fully really accepting and acknowledging that that's such a huge part of that story. It's wild to, to see what people show up in this show that you don't normally expect to see. Like, there's a character who's some local politician guy in New Orleans who's got like the big wrap around mutton chops and shit. And it's fucking John DiMaggio, the voice actor of Bender from Futurama and Jake the Dog from Adventure Time and a really? billion other things. <laughs> so it's wild to see him actually playing a character live action. Yeah, that's crazy. The show is also insanely fucking gory, which I loved. I'm talking like Ooh. punching entire fucking fists through people's heads Hell and yeah. out the other side. Kind of gory, like tearing people in half, ripping heads off, constantly throwing dead bodies around in hilarious ways because they're vampires. They're supernaturally strong. So they'll just pick up a fucking corpse and just yeet it over the bushes. Just stuff like that, that was kind of hilarious. But I really did appreciate that this show does just go full blast. Just ridiculous. It was a lot of fun. I'm very excited to see the next season, which apparently they were in the middle of filming right before the strikes happened and it's about to start back again. So I'm very curious to kind of see how they continue. I think it would be super fun to keep moving forward into the Lestat story and present day as he's a fucking rock star so yeah I'm, I'm very curious to kind of see where it goes from here but so far really enjoyed the first season we had a blast with it nice all right cool that is all i got so let's go ahead and get started discussing the blair witch project from 1999 written directed and edited by daniel myrick and eduardo sanchez their debut film this is a supernatural found footage movie that was it's an understatement to say i guess a massive fucking financial hit a mm -hmm. huge pop culture phenomenon yep. something that for our younger listeners made this was such a huge fucking footage. deal in terms of yes exactly that really not just setting up modern found footage but really bringing horror kind of back mainstream in a different way and ushering in a new era and it's wild because looking back on this movie it's so quaint yep. in so many ways <laughs> so yeah. let's hit him with yeah. the trailer maybe you'll find a good here's a trailer trailer and then uh, we'll, we'll get into it this is my home which i am leaving the comforts of for the weekend to explore the blair witch i can see you i'm real excited about this thank you for i'm the very glad this area's been haunted by that old woman. Oh, yeah. I don't know why you have to have every conversation on video. Because we're making a documentary. Not about us getting lost. We're making a documentary about a witch. I we're don't. lost. Admit that first. No, I know we're not lost. 
They're all over the place. But how do we know it was people? Well, even if it wasn't, I'm not going to play with that either. And it's not because of me that we're here now. <laughs> Hungry. And cold. And hunted. I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. Now, in retrospect, like you mentioned earlier in the episode, Aaron, I think everything surrounding this movie, I think the time and place we were at in our lives in 1999, far more interesting in the way like that <laughs> marketing and everything is more interesting to look back on now. Okay, I didn't hate it. There were far worse things to watch. It was compelling to watch, but I think it was kind of mid. Lauren, what were your thoughts about the Blair Witch Project? So what was interesting to me is I remember watching it a long time ago and not really thinking too much of it. The only thing that really stuck out in my memory is that part where Mike is like, I threw the map in the river, (laughs) which still just irritated me to no end. But, you know, watching it again on a plane, I actually enjoyed watching it. I don't think it's good. It doesn't hold up well. And I think something that's really interesting to think of it as sort of the big spark of found footage movies is that it does everything wrong in found footage. It doesn't have the camera kind of stop on things at certain points. It doesn't make sure that the audience sees things in certain points. I think what is maybe the worst thing about it is that the sound is terrible. I had the subtitles on. I had to put subtitles on. And I wouldn't have known. Yeah, like there were noises where it was almost funny where the character would go, what was that? And I didn't hear anything. And it was kind of like, okay, that doesn't really work. With our modern sensibilities and how it makes us criticize this movie now, you know what it reminded me of? Because I know what part you're talking about, because there was a part I rewound it like three times. being like, can I fucking hear anything that they're talking about? Or see anything. It reminds me of that part in ghost hunting shows where they're like, (gasps) what was that? And there was no sound whatsoever. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's a big flaw with it too, is that anytime there was a scene where they woke up at night and they were going to come out of the tent to investigate what was going on. To me, it was so clearly, Oh, your producer is walking around 20 feet off screen. It was just so clearly, you know, and maybe it does come from that whole, I think like YouTube and TikTok where they have the ghost videos you know, like you say, and it's so clearly, oh, okay, so your friend has a stick and just open that door from off screen. It didn't work. It didn't really scare me. But I also didn't hate it. And I kind of expected to not enjoy it. Yeah, but I did. You know, thank you to Delta Airlines. (laughs) (laughs) One part of me is a little disappointed in thinking like, oh, because it's this big giant cultural touchstone. I was there when like everyone on the playground was talking about it. I was old enough at that point to like really understand the fever pitch that movie like really drawn up. So I was kind of disappointed from that regard because again, this is yet another movie I had really I realized I hadn't really seen before until sitting down to watch it. Okay, that's what I was about to ask y'all a second ago. Was a Have you seen the movie before? B How long mm-hmm. has it been since you've seen it? Yeah, again, it was one of those things just like Friday the Thirteenth where I knew enough about it culturally. That I like know what happens, but I had you had never actually yeah. really fully seen it. S- sat gotcha. down and watch it. So 
again, it was kind of a little disappointing in that regard of like, I think I was expecting more. I feel like I, I get that way with a lot of found footage movies. But then also, too, I enjoyed it. And the longer the movie went, and granted, there were some moments where I felt like, okay, let's keep this rolling, guys. But I felt the longer the movie went, the more I got into the headspace of, okay, if I was in a theater in 1999 with like a group of my friends and I was a teenager, this would be effective. There were moments because I grew to learn the sound design really like kind of fucking bugged me throughout the movie. Mm. They were committed to the realism, I guess, of a 1990s era VHS camera. So, of course, this is what it would look and sound like. So I appreciate that on one hand, but then from an actual movie watching standpoint, it is irritating not be able to hear some of the dialogue or noises. Mm -hmm. But then later on, some of the other sound designs I thought were actually effective. Yes, it's kind of eye-rolly, but I did think the later times they're terrorized and they're tense, when you actually do clearly start hearing stuff, I thought those were effective. I thought the children mm -hmm. laughing and making noises and like conversation off-camera, I thought that stuff was kind of effective and creepy, especially like after you get the backstory of Rustin Parr or whatever that guy's name is and like how he murdered all his children. All that I thought was decent from a horror standpoint. Any of our listeners out there who are like longtime fans, you know, like we have kind of a contentious relationship with found footage already as it is between Aaron and I. And we just seem to always pick these movies and then they're always not quite what I want them to be. Um, I think part of that is just found footage is not everybody's bag. That has kind of always mm -hmm. been the case. I think for me, it has a lot to do with at least build some fucking lore and like a world around the story that you're telling. And I can forgive bad performances, lots of improv dialogue that's just people not really knowing what to say. So they just say fuck a lot. Are you fucking serious? Fucking serious. I don't have the map. I mean, that's the fucking like least responsible thing you could have possibly done, man. And I'm not fucking around. That's all I want too, man. You want to fucking like, we're in the middle of the fucking woods. That's where we've been going for a fucking day. We have no fucking clue where we're moving. To. Heather. <laughs> all yeah. of them, yeah. <laughs> the one guy just starts singing whatever he sings about America. Like, I bet he thought he was being a genius in that scene. Yeah, they're all singing the national anthem. National yeah. anthem yeah, That's like, what it was. That pissed me off so much when he did that. Yeah, I can forgive a lot of that. I can forgive a lot of the like, two minutes of staring at nothing and then like a pot falls if the like lore and the story around what you're watching is compelling this is the first time that i have revisited blair witch since maybe high school i can't remember it has been a long fucking time since i've seen this movie heather had not seen it we watched it together we typically don't watch found footage stuff together because she gets motion sick. But she was like, look, I'm willing to give this a try. I've never actually seen this despite all the hype from when we were growing up. Let's go. And she like made it through it generally fine. She like, you know, had to glance down at her phone pretty consistently to like not throw up, but she kind of had the same reaction, which was okay. So that's, that's it, huh? I'm like, yep, that's it. That's what all the hype was about. So my thing now, especially just really thinking about this from a filmmaking standpoint, from a pop culture standpoint, you know, just 24 years later, it is wild to me, like you said, Lauren, that this movie kind of does everything wrong mm -hmm. in terms of its filmmaking, in terms of 
its execution, in terms of how these guys approach making this movie in this insanely unorthodox way that I still can't quite tell, like, holy shit, was this a genius experiment never to be recreated again, and everything just kind of happened the right way that this was like a phenomenon, or was this just a lot of bright out of film school first-time filmmakers really having no fucking clue what they're actually supposed to be doing or how things work or how actual productions are managed and just again getting really lucky and a lot of lightning strike happening at the same time but it is wild how every piece of the puzzle fell into place for this movie to be a mega hit in a way that you know again this was not even the most successful horror movie of this year which i'll get to in a little bit that's wild but this was like so successful in terms of its initial investment production budget marketing budget total everything to its actual worldwide gross massive huge phenomenon yeah that's fucking wild to me that it wasn't the number one movie though well again the other horror movie was equally as much of a fucking huge massive cultural phenomenon as well too Lauren, you just figured it out. I just saw your face. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Let's try and guess it. Six cents. What did we talk about? Yeah. Oh, yeah. no. Okay. It is wild oh, man. how much of a massive impact both of those movies were to pop culture and to horror filmmaking and how huge of a success they were at the box office. And they both came out within a month of each other. Mm. Largely didn't really cannibalize each other's audiences. No. People were going and seeing both, which is what's crazy. And we'll talk about that kind of more in a little bit once we get to, like, the box office and all that shit. But Yeah. You know what movie that Blair Witch surpassed, though, in the box office that also was this year that made me fucking laugh? The Mummy. No. Deep Blue Sea. Oh, oh Deep Blue Sea. Sure, yeah. I kind of enjoyed Deep Blue Sea. Oh, I enjoyed Deep Blue Sea. Oh, we love Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> Yeah, on the note of things that are objectively not great, but that I enjoy, I will go to bat for found footage. I do like it. There does need to be something purposeful about it. Yeah. Where, you know, in addition to kind of the lore of the story, you do kind of need to make it the case that it makes sense that this person has a camera. And you also need to know why they really need to sell that they are acting like a normal human being would. With that camera. The other movie that had a similar impact and kind of for similar reasons, Paranormal Activity is the other one that immediately springs to mind when I think about Blair Witch and found footage because it did have that similar, like the effect of the marketing campaign. Yeah. I'm inclined to say that Paranormal Activity and Paranormal Activity 3, really, because that one was amazing, do everything right with found footage. Three is my favorite of that series. Three is really the only one of that series that I like. And it's partly because exactly what I said a minute ago, it actually really fucking has story and lore, Mm -hmm. a world built around it. Everything seems motivated and purposeful and intentional in terms of its execution in a way that the other movies just don't fucking have that. Yes. Funny thing too about Jason Blum. Miramax and Jason Blum passed on picking up Blair Witch Project because they were like, oh, this movie's not going to be successful. Whoops. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like, ultimately, I think for me, revisiting this movie after so much time, and this was a movie that even when I saw it in middle school, I I mean, I saw this movie 
not long after it came out. I saw it when it hit home video and it was out and my aunt and uncle like rented it and they were like, yeah, fucking watch this with us. And okay, that's it. That wasn't as scary as everybody at school has made it out to be, as all the marketing and the commercials have made it out to be. I remember even at the time being like, eh, right? But it's one of those things where like, I think I appreciate the phenomenon. I think I appreciate the impact this movie has made more so than anything else. And I think that's where like so you. much of the discussion takes well, place. Mm-hmm. To kind of go back to points both of you were raised, but first, Lauren, the point you made where having a purpose behind why you have a camera Actually, we'll go to bat for Blair Witch in yeah. that regard. I do think the camera being there makes a lot of sense. We are making a documentary. Yeah. Yes. Makes a lot of sense. The other point, though, like where they actually act like human beings is very hit or miss in this movie because some of that is okay. That's not what an actual person would do in this situation. Actually, that's one thing that worked a lot better for me this time because all I remember, and it, it was really driven home by the whole Mike kicks the map in the river a bit, but the characters I thought were a lot stronger than I remember. Same. Yeah, like Heather makes a lot more sense. She is annoying, but also she's a theater kid. I know you. Uh-huh. <laughs> it really wasn't Heather that bothered me. Actually, Heather and Mike were the two I liked. It was the guy who kicked the fucking map in the river. No, Mike kicked the map in the That's river. That's Mike. Yeah. Oh, that was Mike? It was... Um, You're talking about Josh. Josh is the MVP for me. Yeah, I didn't like Mike as well. I thought the characters, again, like the performances were... There were moments, but they were kind of better than I remember. And I think the cool thing about this is that they're all strangers. They don't know each other. They aren't friends going out into the woods. Yeah. The part that actually did kind of get me emotionally was where they realize that they're lost and that we don't know where we are and we're not getting out and there's the log bridge again and we're going to die here. That was all very effective where you have them kind of at each other's throats at times, but also cool at times. And, you know, having those moments of Heather's monologue, I thought actually really did get me despite it sort of being so pop culturally redone like i think the office did something like that at one point i thought for a while i had a mandela effect because i always remember like the i'm so scared part but that was actually in scary movie yeah which spoofed that entire (laughs) monologue scene but i actually liked her monologue despite it being like you said the part that everyone remembers the part i liked more than even just the like oh the forest is the devil's church you know that you get with the witches fucking with them because they're in her territory now But more just the idea of a forest being so dense and you think you're walking in a straight line the entire time and you're really not. And you can easily become lost because I have gotten lost in a forested area before. And it was a forested area that was maybe half a mile from a road and it was still terrifying. And by the time we found the road again and we got out of the forest, we were like a mile down the road from where the car we had actually parked. And we thought we had walked straight back and we didn't. Those are the parts of the movie that actually worked for me is just how easy it is to get lost in the woods when you're not paying attention or like following sure. the map or something. Yeah. Again, another movie that shows that camping is the fucking worst thing you can do in the world. <laughs> this is weird to say. I wish the forest had been a bit thicker. Yeah. I, I kind of wish there had been moments of them having to like fight through brush. And I think part of it is that the forest at times just looked like a park <laughs> to me. And just because it kind of looked like a park when, from when I was a kid. It was a park. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there were times where I was like, all right, guys, you're lost. Okay. There's a lady walking a golden retriever 30 feet away. You're fine. Yeah. That's just a minor gripe. 
I've mentioned this on the show before, but when I was growing up, we visited my great-grandparents in Ohio one time, and this is farmland, right? So it's huge stretches of farm that's all divided by these very thin, narrow little strips of woods. We were out playing in those woods, and my great-grandfather was storming out of the house, putting his jacket on when we were coming back in, and was like, what are you boys doing? Why are you out in those woods? There's bears in those woods. And we kind of started laughing and he was like, I'm not joking. He got like genuinely mad at us. And we were like, what the fuck is this? Maybe a hundred feet end to mm-hmm. end and you can see straight through to the other field from their front yard, you know? And we were just kind of like, what the fuck, grandpa? But it's, it's kind of the same thing where it's like, eh, how often the wilderness are they really when I can like see just behind them and there's a clearing with a parking lot yeah your grandfather definitely was just trying to protect you from the demigod fertility monster that yeah those ohio wendigos absolutely so real talk i did briefly consider for our patreon possibly going to burkittsville it was really only once i started doing my research and getting notes together that i was like nah not gonna do this so new job that i'm working now One of the guys there was like, holy shit, y'all are doing Blair Witch. Bruh, that happened like 10 minutes from where I grew up, right on the other side of the border into Maryland, not far from where we are now. And I was like, oh shit, I can drive there in 30 minutes. And then as I started doing research, it was, oh no, this part was shot at this state park. And then there was the actual town of Burkittsville. And then this part was shot at a different state park. That's 55 (laughs) miles away from Burkittsville. And, you know, this is a concept that's new to me coming from the south, moving to the eastern seaboard. But uh, 55 miles back home was, oh, that's 45 minutes away. 55 miles here is like, it's going to take you two hours because everything is just so dense traffic wise. Mm. To give you an idea, Baltimore is 40 miles from here, but it takes almost two hours sometimes. (laughs) It's that kind of shit. So I was like, you know what? No, I'm not driving all over the place. The like creepy house at the end got torn down the year after the movie came out because so many fans were like swarming the area. literally like hacking off chunks of the house to bring back as souvenirs oh well the state of maryland like demolished it so i was like you know what i'm not gonna bother with this giant goose chase since they really did film all over yeah but i i read that burkittsville wasn't too pleased about that so Mm -hmm. and burkittsville itself is like only a town of like 150 people so they don't seem thrilled that the franchise exists that's another interesting phenomenon with this movie is Burkittsville the town, like you're saying, it really fucked their town up. If we're yeah. talking about actual real-world mm. impact of horror movies, this movie kind of fucked their town up, and the people of the town like really didn't take kindly to it, because all of a sudden there were hundreds of people from l- literally all over the world coming to this town to check things out, and there's like an interesting meta thing happening where like, so much of this movie was marketed as this is real. This is a real urban legend. This is a real thing that Mm -hmm. happened around here. And none of it is. None of this was based on anything real. It's all just this amalgamation made up by these two guys. And whoever decided to like put out the missing posters for the three of them is a marketing genius because that was what really sparked almost like this proto AR campaign. Oh, there's way more than that. 
Yeah. There's way, way more shit than that that I'm going to get into in a minute. Kind of to go back to a point you had brought up, Aaron, was this all just right place, right time? And this is just a bunch of film students who like got super lucky or was there some purpose behind the success of this? I am leaning more towards it was them, right place, right time, a lot of luck. It was the type of horror movie that we needed in 99 that would like really put butts in seats. But I also wonder, especially if either of the two creators had any say in the marketing, I do think then if they did have say in the marketing, like then I do have to give them credit because the marketing of this was ingenious. It was definitely a team effort. I keep saying I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. I mean, we're going to talk about the production of this, kind of how everything fell together. Yeah. But as far as kind of finishing up our conversation about like our impressions of this, from a technical standpoint, I think the movie is still pretty watchable, Mm -hmm. especially considering... So many found footage movies are tough to watch nowadays on bigger, high-definition TVs where that kind of thing can become much more disorienting than just watching it on a small CRT TV already kind of fucking blurry from it being VHS or being on TV or whatever. I think it still works very well. I was genuinely surprised how good the movie looked when we watched it a couple of nights ago. There's a lot of movies around this time that shot digitally using consumer grade DV cameras that look awful, that are like borderline fucking unwatchable. That was a lot of the reason why like David Lynch's Inland Empire didn't come out for years because Criterion went through like a massive restoration process for that movie. Mm. 28 Days Later looks like dog shit. That is one of those movies that shot on DV cams and looks fucking terrible. It is the most. 340p YouTube bullshit (laughs) on your TV now. It's tough to watch. But I was genuinely surprised how good this movie still looked. Something from like 90s filmmaking that I still look back on fondly is the use of different film mediums. Yeah. Switching back and forth between like the actual grainy 16 millimeter black and white film and then like the DV cams. Like I think that still works incredibly well. It feels very Mm -hmm. timeless. Despite the digital camera really aging this movie, and obviously the fashion and, you know, all that bullshit, like Heather's terrible headband, all that kind of stuff, really aging this movie in a way, that part of it was great. They did dress kind of new metal. Yeah. <laughs> At least the guys did. We'll talk about new metal when we get to the sequel, trust me. I was literally trying to figure out a way to transition to talk about Heather's headband because I remember (laughs) those and they hurt. That was the most painful, like, don't talk about the corset, don't talk about anything else. That is the most painful fashion accessory for women. Yeah. That pokey thing that you, oh my gosh, okay, (laughs) yeah, the headband, that's the real horror. Yeah. To kind of go in between something that I can't quite tell whether it worked for me or not, and I wanted to get your takes on it. A lot of the horror in this, and this I guess goes to anyone who hasn't watched this movie yet, a lot of the horror and a lot of the movie, the best way to describe it is one word, implied, or another word, implication. Sure. You hear a lot of stuff, someone says, did you see that, did you see that out in the woods, and you never see what they're seeing. And then at the very end, which, again, I've heard the very end of this movie, like, at the time, in the theaters, after all this buildup, actually was kind of effective. You know, you get that final, not necessarily even a jump scare, and it mirrors what, you know, a side character that they had interviewed earlier on had mentioned about this old man who used to take children out to his cottage and murder them, and it mirrors the way he would murder the children, and that's scary too. Again, and we kind of touch on it with the sound design, 
parts of it didn't work. Like when you couldn't hear what the fuck they were talking about, you couldn't see what they were seeing. But then other parts of it I thought were effective, like them finding the stones and the other big cultural thing that everyone always spoofs are like the stick carvings that are hanging in all the trees. I thought that was actually really well done in eerie imagery, kind of wandering into like, I guess, sort of a graveyard or like altar or sacred ground for the witch. After the one guy goes missing, she discovers the bundle of twigs and part of his shirt. And like when she opens it, it's a piece of visceral something and some of his teeth and hair. Thought all that was great. Going back to your point about world building, I wish we got a little bit more of that. And then the whole end in the cottage, I did like the final like scare, but then kind of just them running blindly into this cottage was also sort of just really guys after all of this, you know what's going on here. Like you've already established that the witch fucks with you by like mimicking other people's voices. You're not remembering that suddenly. I think for horror fans, especially if you found footage horror fans, this is definitely at least a once watch. If you've never seen it, like you, you should watch it for just, the cultural importance. Just to see what's yeah, up. Agreed. Yeah. Out of the three movies we've covered this Halloween, Candyman, the first Friday the 13th movie, and this, I would say this is the one that has aged A, the worst, and B, is probably not the best watch out of the three of them. The other two, I think it's still just as important to watch from a full-scope horror standpoint, especially if you like found footage and you want to see like where modern found footage spawned from. So that was all a very long way to kind of set that up. I will kind of jump in first and kind of answer because this is where I was going with my original thought was, like I said, the movie, I think, looks good. Yeah. You know, especially I think it holds up in 2023 when a lot of found footage movies look like dog shit by comparison. And this doesn't hold up for everything because, Lauren, like you said, I think the sound in this movie sucks. The sound mixing is bad. They're missing a lot of opportunity to capture things because they are not using any live mics you know they're not mic'd they're just pulling hot you know whatever's coming right into the camera so the sound sucks but the visuals i think work and one thing that's interesting is they shot all of this footage themselves this is not like most found footage movies where there is still a fucking camera op and a cinematographer handling all of that and just you know like oh it is dave the cameraman or it's johnny with his camera This movie legitimately was the actual cast shooting everything, which is why there's lots of points where shit's out of focus, things are blown out, you can't see what's going on, you're not really sure what you're supposed to be looking at, the angles are fucking weird. Like, obviously, like, at the end with Heather staring off into the darkness and the camera's just shooting right up her nose. Yeah, which is what the spoof made fun of later on. Yeah. I think despite not being professionally shot, you're still pretty drawn in and constantly watching the edges of the frame. Your eyes are constantly looking all over the place. You're trained from watching so many other horror movies to look all around the edges because you're looking for things peeking out behind trees. You're looking for something to like, suddenly let go of its camouflage and move (laughs) the predator You're waiting to see like a stick figure kind of turn in the wind and then you can suddenly see that it's a stick person right you're constantly still zooming around the edge so if we're talking about this movie making you at least visually engaged with it i think that still works in a way that a lot of horror movies tend to kind of be phone clickers especially found footage stuff Yeah. Paranormal activity is 
super guilty about that where like we're <sighs> really gonna fucking just show you five minutes of a fucking kitchen and then a spoon is gonna fall off the wall <laughs> okay this is gonna be another me defending saw and the entirety of the franchise thing Paranormal activity just scared the bejesus out of me. So, like, Derek, in terms of what you're saying, where the scares are, and there are a few, I think those moments still generally work. They're eerie. And it's because there is an uncanniness. They're, they're definitely eerie and creepy. There's an unpolished, uncanny feeling about what you are being visually shown by the cameras that are being handled by non-professionals. And so there is this edge of like, wait, what did I just see? Did I just see something? I'm not sure, right? And your brain starts to interpolate and fill in those gaps, right? Which is why so many people have all of these Mandela effect, Berenstein, Berenstein remembrances of this movie, right? There's no witch in this. There is no witch in this movie, yet so many people still swear like, oh, no, you see the witch in that one moment. Yeah, you you never do. Right. And then again, it didn't help that scary movie came out very quickly after this and spoofed nonstop on at least parts of Blair Witch. What also didn't help, too, that Blair Witch in and of itself spawned all kinds of extra media. And in every single one of those things, there is a witch monster. Right. So it kind of fully goes back on the Jaws idea of we're not going to show you the witch and everything else is like, oh, here's the witch. (laughs) fucking todd mcfarland and like all of his weird horror action figures the movie maniacs line they legitimately made a like blair witch action figure for a character that's (laughs) not in a movie right like it doesn't exist yeah so it's interesting again how you know everyone's brains kind of forcibly push them to that point because you just you want to see what's not there and your brain's starting to fill that in. But it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, for as many scares, you know, in air quotes, as there are, you know, the scene at the very end, unwrapping the stick bundle and finding the tooth. Ultimately, what is there if there's no witch? You know, what are we looking at? I don't know. Thoughts on that, I guess, to kind of bounce off of Derek's original question. I think it just goes hand in hand with everything's implied and that the Blair Witch is almost more of an invisible force than anything. That part where he talks about kicking the map into the water, I read that scene as it's ambiguous on whether or not he did that because he's just an asshole and thought the map was useless, or is the witch already fucking with him and subliminally, subliminally, and getting him to do that to purposely get them lost so they can wander like into her web, basically, which is kind of what it felt yeah. like. Like the force was kind of guiding them on purpose to this fate. Yeah, that was how I read it this time was, oh, okay, like he might be under the witch's spell. And especially because it was kind of out of character for Mike. He was this pretty chill, easygoing, seemed like a good enough guy. And then he does this weird maniac laughing and, you know, has (laughs) this moment. And so that was how I read it, which I can kind of forgive. But I don't know. I just... It was just very clearly contrived plot point yeah. to lose the map. To lose the map. Yeah, I agree with you there. Yeah, and to kind of sow division. I do think that this movie benefited slightly from me viewing it on a plane, but I do think it was worse in some ways, where I think it's got to be genuinely hard to be scared by a horror movie on a plane. There's not that much to be scared of. Sure. You're surrounded by people. There's light 
you're wearing a seatbelt. You know, it's it's hard to yeah. be scared. The environment is not conducive. Yeah. Yes, but I will say I did enjoy watching this, and it is something that I feel like I would watch again. Yeah. It's not quite a one and done. I do think, you know, speaking to the visuals, like you were saying, Aaron, that it's very watchable, especially for the circumstances of it. Yeah. A part of me almost wants, even though I think it also causes the movie to suffer in some ways, the sound mixing, I kind of appreciate and respect the audacity to commit so much to the bit that you make the actors be the ones to handle all of the equipment that's actually shooting the film and have them improvise so much of the dialogue. You just wait, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a part of me kind of just has to appreciate the audacity of that. I think if, you know, going to put another positive thing out there for this movie, one criticism of a lot of horror movies is I don't find this character's progression into madness and desperation to be believable. It happens Mm -hmm. too fast. There's no specific reason why this character suddenly snaps and does X, Y, Z. You know, those are all kind of things that you hear a lot about all kinds of different horror movies. You know, like one famous instance is I don't for a second believe Jack Nicholson in The Shining, you know, as Jack Torrance. I don't believe his breakdown because Jack Nicholson from the beginning seems crazy. (laughs) <laughs> and so, like, oh, okay. I don't believe his character's breakdown and progression into madness because right off the bat, he's, like, fucking doing his crazy eyebrows, man. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? I, I still love his performance of that movie. Sure, 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 sure. And that's a common criticism that I hear people have made over the years about The Shining and, like, Jack Nicholson's performance in that. Mm-hmm. I will say, I genuinely think the improv dialogue is not great. Again, it's a lot of I don't know what to say next. No, I'm not fucking scared. I'm just tired. I'm hungry. I'm fucking like, I'm just fucking done. I'm just fucking done. Fuck, fuck, fuckity fuck, fuck, right? (laughs) You know, improv is hard. And so there's a lot of them just kind of falling back on like screaming fuck into the air a lot. And it gets annoying. I do think that their gradual breakdown feels really natural. The progression of them, like, becoming more and more fucking hostile toward each other, the progression of them becoming more manic and desperate, and just, like you said, making bad decisions by the end. Decisions that nobody would actually do. Well, we haven't been out in the woods for a week, no food for how many days? Freezing, rain. Literally walking all day, wearing ourselves out, not getting enough food not getting enough water, losing our minds, right? So it's the kind of thing where I will 100% give the movie props for like how natural that feels and how believable that feels. Now, the filmmaking part of this is kind of fucked up, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Yeah. But there's a reason why it works as well as it does, and it's because it basically really happened that way. Oh, well. <laughs> That's one of those things where... Yeah. I think it works so well, but it's also, again, back to the question of, are these filmmakers geniuses, or did they really just not know how to actually manage a fucking production properly? Real quick, to go back to their like breakdown, I think the thing that worked for me with the breakdown was the timing. How the progression went made sense. Maybe some of the improv of them shouting fuck and all that was like, eh, take it or leave it. Sometimes it was annoying, but as far as 
how and when they break down and the next step of escalation and then like when arguments start happening and all that i did think yeah it was all well paced that's what i'm saying all of that works step by step yes it's genuinely upsetting because it was genuine now we need to hear this yeah okay so this is like a good point for us to kind of transition into let's talk about the story of this shit i guess one last thing since derek is about to hop up and pee real quick I normally hate cheeky shit like references or anagram names. A lot of the movies where they're like, oh, yeah, you need to go see your teacher, Mr. Carpenter, and then go talk to your neighbor, Mr. Hooper, and then go see your dad's best friend, Mr. Romero, right? Fuck off with that stuff. Mm -hmm. That has really only worked one time, and that was Night of the Creeps. Oh, this character is not Aleister Crowley. This character is Alsatia Crowley. So in this movie, we have two instances. So the child murder, Rustin Parr, that is all an anagram for Rasputin. Ooh. And then Ellie Kedward, the like supposed witch, is an anagram backwards, the kind of spelling of Edward Kelly, who was an English occultist writer, kind of crazy guy who got way deep off into like all the Abermelon summoning your guardian angel mysticism kind of bullshit. So those two, I think, are like buried deep enough in this story because, again, they're just so fleeting in terms of the overall of this movie that you don't really think about them a lot in that yeah. sense. And they're anagrams, which is huge. Which helps, right? Yes. So anyway, yeah, that was one weird, cheeky detail. I was like, okay, sure. Normally that bugs me, but in this case it doesn't really. Okay, so to kind of jump into like where the fuck did all this happen. So the two directors, Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez, were film school buddies. After this, their giant breakout, Daniel Myrick went on to do... A lot of low-key stuff. Believers, Solstice, The Objective, Skyman, which is about aliens. Eduardo Sanchez has had a better career, let's say. The movie that he did after this was called Altered, which was an alien abduction but backwards movie where a bunch of rednecks who were like terrorized by aliens as kids now have captured an alien and are torturing it in the garage of one of their friend's house as payback. Ooh. Oh, that movie's fucking pretty great. I talked about it at several episodes really? back in recommendations. I believe it's still on Tubi for free. Pretty good. Shout out to Tubi. Yeah, shout out to Tubi for sure. He also did The Seventh Moon, Lovely Molly. He did a segment in VHS 2, which that is going to come back up later. He did this Bigfoot movie called Exists. He did a lot of TV, including American Horror Story, Lucifer, Supernatural. He did some Yellow Jackets. He actually just did a segment in a recent anthology movie called Satanic Hispanics. So anyway, he is still working, but this was their big breakout thing. Originally, they developed this concept back in 1993 while they were still attending the University of Central Florida, and they wrote a like 35-page script outline so they didn't really like ever have a script which that's one of the things i remember hearing about this movie was it was all improvised there was no script and Mm -hmm. that's mostly true like they just had a very basic lore outline 
but the dialogue is all improv. Most of actually what happens beat by beat is pretty improv. So they come up with this idea in 93, and the whole deal was they were more taken by how eerie and unsettling supernatural documentaries were compared to the horror films at the time. So stuff like In Search Of and Unsolved Mysteries and The Legend of Boggy Creek, which is about Bigfoot and Chariots of the Gods, which is about aliens. Again, Mm -hmm. things that both of these guys would revisit later in their careers. Aliens. Aliens, yeah. So they decide, okay, we want to make a movie, but a movie that feels more like these TV docs that we kind of find to be scarier. So they got together with a couple of their buddies and they created a production company called Haxon Films, which, huh. ding, 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 Lauren, you were on our episode <gasps> during Season of Spoop two years ago for Haxon. About a witch. My very first appearance. Hell yeah. Yeah, go listen to that, uh, listeners, because that's our Season of Spoop where we focus on witch movies. And Haxon is, what, like 1929? Yeah, Movie about fun. witches that still fucking holds up and is interesting. Yeah. So they did an open casting call and got all three of the leads by June of 96. They shot on location in Seneca Creek State Park and Burkittsville for eight days in late October 97. So the three leads, we have Heather Donahue, which, first of all, they're all playing characters that have their real names, which Heather Donahue has said since she kind of regrets. Did you see that she changed her name legally because of that? Her book was coming out and she changed her name to Ray Hans, R-E-I Hans, back in 2020, I think. So she said, yeah, this made auditioning more difficult. Kind of wish I hadn't done it. There's some other funny shit that is going to come up in a second regarding that as well, too. Like you said, she retired from acting in 2008 to pursue medical cannabis. But uh, she was in a sex rom-com called Boys and Girls. She was in the big Steven Spielberg alien abduction TV show, Taken. She is in an episode of It's Always Sunny. Yeah. Where she plays Stacey Corvelli. Yeah, the one that claims in the beginning of the episode, Charlie, they had a son out of wedlock together. Yeah. She was also in this really crazy-looking sci-fi channel movie called Manticore that had uh, Robert <laughs> Beltran please and tell Jeff me Fahey in it. Um, oh, God, Jeff Fahey's also in it. Please yeah. tell me uh, Alien Manticore is the monster in it. Oh, totally. It's some ancient Babylonian fucking Fuck like yeah. were-dog lion bullshit CGI thing. Anyway, so she did some more acting, but mostly moved away from it. Michael C. Williams, kind of the same deal. He's in some TV. He comes back for Altered and The Objective. So he kind of comes back and like does a favor for each of the two directors on their separate projects later. He was just in a cameo for Sanchez's segment in Satanic Hispanics. But Josh Leonard is the one who really seems to have had a solid career after this. He, again, ton of TV. He's in Men of Honor, Hatchet, Prom Night, Shark Night. True Detective, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, Bates Motel, Unsane, and Depraved. So, like, he's been in a lot of shit, and he has been in a lot of horror as well. A lot of horror, yeah, damn. A lot of the townspeople were not actors, but some were actors and were completely planted by the crew, and the cast had no idea. So there was always this weird element of, 
I'm asking people about the Blair Witch, and they're mostly like, yeah, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. But then they're asking some people who are like, oh, yeah, no, I know exactly what the fuck you're talking about. Let me tell you all about the Blair Witch. Please tell me that the old guy was totally just like, oh, yeah, I know the Blair Witch. And he, like, wasn't part of the cast at all. The two fishermen were definitely actors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I believe the waitress is maybe Eduardo Sanchez's sister. But the crazy lady who, like, approaches them in the street and is like, I know about the Blair Witch. I'll tell you all about the Blair Witch. She was not an actress, and <laughs> she, like, went off of this fucking diatribe for, like, 20 minutes, and they just showed a bit of it in the movie, and then she just fucking disappeared into the wind. They, like, literally turned around, and she was gone, and they couldn't find her to, like, sign release forms. Don't go down that road. Yeah. <laughs> and I love how they're talking in the car later, and they, like, improvise that line of, she talked her ear off for 20 minutes, she was fucking crazy. So, like, there's a bit of realism in there. So the other old crazy person, Mary Brown, or they like go to her trailer. Mm -hmm. She is the only person from the local community college who responded to their help wanted ads for the production. <laughs> they like put up help wanted signs for like, come work on a fucking feature film. And she was the only person that showed up. She like went on to help with the art department after she did this role. But the trailer that they go to with the like weird little creepy stick fence, that's all real. That's our real house. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah, fun times. Real local folk came out for this. If she was in the art design, do you think she helped create the stick figure? She things? probably made a lot of fucking stick bundles. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Cinematographer Neil Fredericks provided the 16 millimeter film camera and he like oversaw the shoot. But like I said, everything shown in the film that we see, with the exception of one interview scene, which we'll talk about later, all of it was shot by the cast. So he was just kind of there to, like, guide and observe, right? He, by the way, has a fucking super tragic story because he had a budding career and then died in a fucking plane accident where they were flying over some islands to get some aerial shots, the engine and the plane crapped out, the plane went down, the director and the pilot and one other crew person all managed to get out of the plane, but he had tied himself into the plane to like steady himself while he was shooting and couldn't untie himself. And so he died two years after this fucking movie. Joshua Leonard jokingly claims that he was only cast in the movie because he already knew how to operate the camera. And uh, <laughs> turns out he totally didn't know how to operate the camera. Oh, wow. Lied in the interview. Yeah, exactly. The digital camera was bought at Circuit City. And then once they were done filming, they immediately returned the fucking camera. <laughs> so somewhere, possibly, somebody in like the back of their closet owns the fucking camera that Blair Witch was shot on, possibly. So here's where this shit gets wild in terms of this is not how you make a movie. And I don't know if this was designed to be this giant grand experiment in filmmaking that's genius or if this is just we have no idea what we're fucking doing. So, again, the dialogue is improvised. The way this whole fucking production worked, the cast was given a set of instructions, GPS coordinates, a GPS that had emergency instructions programmed in in case they did actually get lost. Oh my god. They were not allowed to have their cell phones with them. They were just given like a basic outline of each of their character motivations, one or two things that they're supposed to do, dot, dot, dot. 
follow the GPS to these coordinates. And they would go, and they would film, and they would improvise along the way. And the crew kind of followed from a distance and watched from a distance. The GPS coordinates would take them out into the middle of the fucking woods to a crate, like a milk crate that was left there previously, and that would have their next drop with food and water, more film canisters, and then more instructions on what to do next, and the next GPS coordinates. And so then they would keep going from there. Apparently, they did not have to, like, ever pitch the tent. So they were actually sleeping out in the woods. And then at night, the fucking crew would terrorize them. So the crew would literally (laughs) come and fuck with the tent and brush up against the tent and leave the creepy shit outside the tent and crack sticks and throw sticks in the woods off in the distance where they can't see. And they were filming all this. The like creepy kid noises were all just being played on a boombox one night. Were they forewarned? Like, the actors, were they forewarned? They knew that they were going to be fucked with. Just not how it was going to But they did not know how or to what extent or whatever. Mm -hmm. They did have to sign waivers saying, we are going to be part of this experimental filmmaking thing. But that was kind of the whole thing, was this producer, Greg Hale, kind of replicated some of his military training, where they would do these survival out-in-the-woods We're all kind of hunting or trying to survive an enemy group. So we have to keep our distance and like essentially play tag in a way. They still do that in military training too. Yeah, it's very common, right? But not in filmmaking. Yeah, not filmmaking. But shit like the scene where they walked all day long just to end right back up at their camp. That was not staged. They did that. Their instructions literally were like, keep walking in this direction. Go to this coordinate. Go to this coordinate. Go to this coordinate. They literally walked all day long and just ended up back at camp and were like, fuck this, goddammit. So a lot of their like reaction in that moment is genuine because they were fucking made to walk around all day and then just ended up back at their camp. Wow. There was one night where there was a rainstorm, which you do see a little bit of that where it's pouring rain. But then when they got to the tent for that night, because again, the crew is setting up the tent at the next location for them to stop for the night. So they don't have to do all the work pitching the tent. That was going to be my question. Like, what do you mean they didn't pitch the tent? Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm following. Yeah. The crew then goes behind them once they leave, breaks down the tent and moves it to the next location for them. Well, the day that it started raining, they get to the fucking tent. Everything is fucking soaked. All their clothes, all their bedding, everything is fucking soaked because the tent had like a leak in it and it was just pouring rain and it wasn't supposed to rain. And that was one of the only times where they were forced to break character and abandon filming for the day. They didn't have their cell phones. The GPS was kind of iffy on the coordinates or whatever, but it still worked to get them the emergency, get the fuck out of their coordinates. And so they were able to, like, get out of the woods and get to, like, some rando person's house that was nice enough to let them in and use their phone so they could call the director and the crew to come pick them up and, like, bring them back to a hotel for the night. And then they just picked up filming the next day. God, I would have been, I can imagine how pissed they were. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, they're also being sleep deprived every night because Mm -hmm. every night that they're filming the crew's fucking with them they are also being given less and less food over the course of the shooting as well legitimate you can't get away with this shit anymore kind of stuff yeah the commitment to the bit was a lot greater than i thought like you mentioned oh totally they shot over the course of eight days so it's not like this was weeks right this was 
a solid week of miserable bullshit. And it was really only supposed mm-hmm. to be seven days, but they like fucked something up and didn't get enough shots on that last day that they had to stretch into an eighth day, which just coincidentally was fucking Halloween night. So that's how they ended the shoot was on Halloween night at the fucking creppy house. The scene where they like all bust out of the tent and go running and Heather like sees something behind them chasing her. That moment was supposed to be the one moment where you see the Blair Witch and it was just supposed to be eerie woman in white dress uh, behind them, which was really art director Ricardo Moreno wearing like a fucking white bodysuit and a white hood over his head chasing behind her. So when she does say like, oh shit, what is that? That's who she's referring to. And she was supposed to like pan the camera backwards or Mike or Josh, whoever had the camera, supposed to look back with the camera and just fucking didn't. And they didn't have time to reshoot it, so they just kept going, right? Mm -hmm. That was supposed to be the one moment where we see the witch, and we fucking don't. Yeah. (laughs) I rewatched that scene like two or three times. I was like, are we technically supposed to see anything here? And yeah, there's nothing. (laughs) The ending with Williams facing the corner was kind of something that was only figured out a few days prior. Filming wrapped again on Halloween night at the dilapidated Griggs house, which that is over in Patapsco Valley State Park, which is near Granite, Maryland. It's like 50 miles away. As I was saying, it's not quite a linear, all-in-one-spot kind of thing, which is part of the reason why I was like, "Ah, I'm not doing all this fucking driving around for shits and giggles. Like I mentioned, too many fans like swarmed the fucking area after this movie, Mm -hmm. and the house was demolished the next year. I'm guessing they added the bloody handprints and all that shit on the walls of the the dilapidated house at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all that shit was added by them. So after all this, another producer, who was already like a well-known established producer, had been working in the industry for like 20 years, Kevin Fox, he came on in May of 98. So this is after production's done. He brought in a PR firm to start the whole marketing blitz. So this is where things really start to go into overdrive. They make this fucking website. I remember the that website. launched in June of 98. Yeah. So this is a whole fucking year before the movie came out. And this is where they started putting in the fake missing persons flyers and interviews with the family members and fake law enforcement officials and contact details to report any information that you know. So they set all this shit up. Myrick and Sanchez made this eight-minute proof-of-concept mini-doc that they then showed to other investors to get more people on board so they could finish post-production. Because this thing, they shot this in eight days, but then it took eight fucking months to actually edit and like hone the entire thing down. Mm. The little mini-doc that they shot ended up airing on this IFC show called Split Screen in August of 98. Which, again, whole entire fucking year before... The movie came out. They like put up this mini doc. Like, yeah, we're making a documentary about this crazy shit that happened in Maryland. So they're like already really starting to plant those seeds. The IMDb pages for the three lead actors had all of them listed as missing or deceased. And that stayed as far as a year after the film's release. I love that. And like I was mentioning a second ago, as far as them like keeping their real names, Heather Donahue's mom started getting all these fucking condolences cards and shit that were like, oh, we're sorry for your loss. From just like random strangers who like didn't realize this was all a fucking gag. And I'll say this much too. This movie gets credited for a lot of, holy shit, this is the first viral marketing movie ever made. 
go back and listen to our episode about Cannibal Holocaust, because they do a lot of the same shit that Ruggiero Diodato and his team yeah. did for that movie. Part of which was mm. the actors had to sign this clause that I'm not going to appear in any publicity or any other movies or be in anything else for the next year after the movie to like really sell the idea that this is found footage and these people really died and all that. Mm-hmm. And by the way, with the website specifically, unfortunately, it's been taken down, but I think you can still get to it on the Wayback Machine or Internet Archives. Yeah, you can. And someone had posted those little mini videos that they had that they called Bones, Cemetery Screw Up, Detective yeah. One, that were all like 30 second little media clips that, again, back in 1998-99 were highly impressive. So if you want a fun taste of early internet you Zoomers, go look up the Blair Witch website on the Wayback Machine or Internet Archives. It's a trip. Yeah. Ultimately, they shot 20 hours of footage for this whole thing. Wow. And ultimately got edited down to 82 minutes. So what's wild is they started showing this at all these smaller film festivals for like the months leading up to its theatrical release. Because their original intent was, we want to air this as a TV special. They had no fucking concept of this would actually show in theaters, right? Mm-hmm. Apparently, one version that they showed at a festival was two and a half hours long. That's way too long. Way too fucking long, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. For a movie like this, yeah. For anything, that's too long. Well, unless you're Papa Scorsese. Um, that's what I was about to say. I say that, <laughs> and I'm chomping at the bit to go see Killers of the Flower Moon, which is four hours long, anyway. Yeah. Fuck that. <laughs> 90 minutes. 90 minutes. Yeah, 90 long. minutes. I'm with you. 90 minutes is perfect. Unless you have a goddamn intermission, which he doesn't. So the cool thing was, with all these screenings at these various film festivals, they kept honing and re-editing and honing and re-editing, and they kept doing more guerrilla marketing. They kept handing out missing persons flyers and showing bits of, oh yeah, here's the rest of our documentary stuff that we're making, and here's some of the actual footage. They kept showing it in these weird, broken kind of ways. I think even in person and also again on the old late 90s website they like showed screenshots of here's the evidence released by the county sheriff's office and here's three of the original film cans that are all like kind of rusted now from the rain and here's parts of heather's journal that she was keeping they had family photos of them and interviews with their family members talking about like oh yeah we just wish somebody would fucking tell us where they're they had all kinds of shit that they shot because yeah. they shot 20 hours worth of shit. They shot so much stuff that like they literally made a second documentary about it, which I'll mention in a second. But ultimately, all this really blew up because they got into fucking Sundance. It played the midnight slot, January 23rd, 1999. And that's where this movie like blew the fuck up. Artisan Entertainment immediately was like, yo, we'll pick this movie up in a heartbeat here's 1.1 million dollars the only contention was the ending is fucking confusing we need to rework that because the original ending is exactly what we see where they're running around in the house they get down to the basement and just see mike staring into the corner but there's none of the context for rustin parr and the child murders or any of that stuff in this version of the movie so far So Artisan basically ponied up the money for Myrick and Sanchez and just Williams to go back to Maryland. They shot four different endings. One of them is him staring forward 
in the corner. One of them is him literally hanging by a noose from the rafters in the corner. One of them is him levitating eerily in the corner. But they just ended up going with the original ending of him staring off into the corner. And what they did was they went back and shot this extra interview scene where they talk about the fucking child murders to contextualize that ending. That is the only scene that was not shot by the cast themselves. Interesting. Okay. But once they inserted that in there, then all of a sudden, like, the ending makes more fucking sense, right? Yeah. Right. And so that seemed to solve the issue. So from here, Artisan's marketing team took over, and they pulled even more stunts. So the trailer was leaked, in air quotes, to Ain't It Cool News in April. Speaking of fucking the internet circa 2000. <laughs> yeah. A second trailer was premiered before The Phantom Menace in May. So you now have fucking thousands of people going to see the first new Star Wars movie Millions. in almost two decades. Millions of people. And they're all seeing this trailer for this fucking movie going, what the hell is this? Oh, wow. They also did all these special screenings at 40 different colleges across the country. In this, again, gorilla kind of way and kept building up that this is a real thing. All this footage is fucking real, right? Myrick and Sanchez, again, made a completely extra like 40-minute doc for Sci-Fi Channel called Curse of the Blair Witch. That's largely just using all of this extra footage that they shot and didn't use in the final movie. There was supposed to be way more interview and talking head stuff interspersed throughout the movie and they just decided to like trim all that shit out and just have it be them out in the woods for the movie the Blair Witch Project the most intense theatrical experience of the summer has spawned the most frightening investigation on television I don't feel too comfortable with seeing the last few days of my brother's life on video sci-fi presents the uncensored investigation curse of the Blair Witch Saturday at 9pm took all that and made this separate documentary that aired two days before the theatrical release on Sci-Fi Channel. So here's the other crazy thing as far as we used to be a proper country. <laughs> the movie premiered in New York City on July 14. It expanded to 25 cities that first weekend. And the first week that this movie was out, it grossed $1.5 million. In its third week, it expanded nationwide. It grossed $29 million and hit number two right behind Runaway Bride. It doubled that number of theaters by its fourth week, grossed another $24 million, and still stayed at number two, this time just behind the sixth sense. Mm -hmm. It would ultimately end up grossing $249 million worldwide. $141 million of that was just from North America. And it was the seventh highest grossing movie of 1999 behind Runaway Bride, Tarzan, The Matrix, Toy Story 2, The Sixth Sense, and The Phantom Menace. What a that fucking is wild year, by the way. <laughs> fucking bananas. That's crazy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Off of a budget that at the most was, what, around 700000 at most? At, at most. And that's yeah. the other crazy shit as far as really how... Budgets can balloon once bigger people get involved and the studios get involved and marketing happens, right? The original production budget for this movie, depending on who's telling the story, is reported to be anywhere between 20, 25, 35, up to $60,000. 
and then it ballooned to somewhere around 200 to 750k after all the post production that's a wild spread $200,000 is a lot of money 750,000 is way the fuck more so there's like a wide gap of discrepancy there right and ultimately up to 500 to 750,000 dollars after all the advertising had been done so mm. at most 3 quarters of a million dollars total but then this movie went on to make 250 million dollars worldwide which is utterly fucking insane in 99 yeah closest comparison since then for like found footage in terms of impact culturally but also financial success everything going back again lauren to what you brought up earlier was paranormal activity because the original production for paranormal activity was only like fifteen thousand, and it wasn't really until post-production that ballooned up to like just over two hundred thousand and that movie almost made 200 million box office worldwide i think it was 194 million when i looked it up but even then and that was in 2007 this is 1999 and it still was more financially successful than even paranormal activity and paranormal activity i think is since then the closest we've come to mirroring the success of the original blair witch not just in financial success but again cultural impact because paranormal activity back in 2007 was also an explosion granted I'd still argue in the long run, Blair Witch is a bigger, you know, historical impact than even Paranormal Activity is. And that's crazy because you could do a whole podcast, you could do a whole goddamn class in college on marketing just around the marketing of Blair Witch alone and like the history of it because it really was the proto. And it borrowed a lot of stuff, like you said, Aaron, had already been done, but had been done on movies that weren't nearly as openly profitable or like to the mainstream you know like a cannibal holocaust or just had been two decades before like cannibal yeah. holocaust yeah right it was proto ar like marketing proto guerrilla marketing for what we now know like modern sense yeah. of like marketing and media the other crazy thing is this and this is all stuff that a lot of people are gonna be like whatever don't care why are we talking about this but this is why strikes are happening right because like these are the kind of things in terms of how people get paid and where people make their money and where money is made on the back end and long-term financial impacts of things. Again, residuals, just all that. This movie was a massive home video seller. This was a huge early DVD hit. DVD, like as a format, had only come out in 97. And so this is two years after that, right? This was a massive home video seller. I remember tons of people had copies of this just laying around. People that like weren't even fans of horror movies had copies of this laying around. Artisan dumped another $15 million into the home video marketing. That's more money by leaps and leaps and bounds than they ever put into like making the fucking movie, right? Mm-hmm. But over 4 million DVD units were sold just from its late October release the following year to the end of the year and there's no accounting for the vhs sales and again this is 2000 this is when vhs was still the dominant format Mm -hmm. i would bet there were probably at least as many vhs sold if not double than dvd at this point and for example again just to show you like how things have changed with the home video marketing the top disc seller for the year 2022 was spider-man no way home that sold 500,000 units on DVD, which again, DVD is a dead format at this point. It just fucking is. Right. Aside from like 
Blu-ray and aside from 4K, streaming is obviously what everything is based around now. It's wild that half a fucking million DVD units of Spider-Man No Way Home were sold, and then 1.5 million Blu-ray 4K units, right? But this was from April to the end of the year. In the span of four times the amount of time, it sold half total units of just what Blair Witch sold on just DVD. That's fucking nuts. And again, all this is dumb bullshit, but it's important in terms of these guys made their money. They made money. Everybody got paid. Everybody got crazy residuals from the home video release. These guys lived off that money for a couple of years. I read a couple of things where they were like, I can't tell you how much money I've made exactly, but I'm legitimately looking at very nice houses to buy right now. You know, just shit like that, where it's like, okay, that's why it's important that people are getting paid if the movie is still profitable. The thing that they worked on is still profitable. Where it's complicated now is streaming just fucking obscures and paves over all of these numbers because the streamers don't fucking release stats for any of this shit. If you're a budding star and you're in a hit Netflix show, how does that translate into like what I'm being paid? Yeah. Did I just get paid up front and that's it? That's all I'll ever see. And so now this thing blew up and it's every fucking where and Netflix is making gajillions of dollars off of my work and I got paid up front $50,000, right? That's why you have all the people posting pictures of their one cent residual checks like exactly one cent that they get sent like every so often exactly because it's just shit where like the streamers don't have to accurately or at all post any of this information or any of these numbers or how popular anything actually is and how many people are actually watching stuff so there just needs to be more transparency around that to ensure that all the lower level people are getting paid and if something does blow up and become a massive success that like everybody benefits from that and not just the streamer So yeah, it's wild how instantly fucking big this movie was in just every fucking way. I mean, this movie was also, again, spoofed a gajillion ways to Sunday. I mean, it's part of the reason why Scary Movie even became its own franchise. Partly, yeah, because it was one of the movies that they were riffing on. You are strictly a 90s kid. Aaron and I were born in the late 80s, and when this was hitting, we were almost at an age where we were in middle school. We were just shy of middle school. We had that surrounding us, so like we maybe had siblings that were older, whatso, but you're a little bit younger than we are. Were you aware of this juggernaut in culture, like when it dropped at all? Not at, at all. The time? I would have been in like second grade. Yeah. Yeah, not at all. I was just wondering how far reaching it was because I think at that point I was just starting to become like, all right, I, I go on AOL multiple times a week. My sisters are older, and or at least one of them liked horror movies at the time. And then with us being so close to middle school at that point, there were a lot of people that talked on the playground about like, oh, my older brother showed this to me or blah, blah, blah. So there was like this whole legacy that built around something like a Blair Witch. You know, weirdly enough, I actually really strongly remember that happening with Titanic, (laughs) but not anything else. (laughs) Yeah. They have a sex scene in that one part. Funny enough, Heather was actually talking to her younger sister, Danielle, right before we started recording. And Danielle is 12, 13 years younger than us. She's a whole generation younger than us. Mm. My youngest brother is the same age. Heather and I both have a relationship with our siblings that are of a completely different generation in that way. And 
she was telling her like, yeah, they're about to record about Blair Witch. And she was like, oh, yeah, I saw that movie a couple of years ago. Whatever. I didn't think much of that movie. (laughs) And Heather was like, you know, fine. That in and of itself, whatever. But she was like, you have no fucking clue, though, like how big of a deal this movie was when it came out. Listen here, you little shit. (laughs) And how everybody was talking about it. Like, there's not really anything that is that ubiquitous in culture now. Yeah. Game of Thrones was one of the last big massive things. And that shit the bed at the end. Sure, but I'm just saying in terms of something that everybody was really kind of talking about that really hit all four quadrants. That was a worldwide hit that continued to be this big giant pop culture thing that left a lasting impact that lots of people tried to rip off afterward. It was a big deal. I'd say for a little while, MCU was there before the MCU became wow. Marvel, yeah. As we know, Marvel, like as a whole, is another one of those things, too. Yeah. Well, I was going to say the thing about Blair Witch or Titanic or, you know, The Sixth Sense is that not only were they these huge successes and these cultural touchstones, but they were for a long time. Yeah. They really had word of mouth spread, whereas, yeah, Game of Thrones had that, and yeah, Marvel has that, but it's like you said, Aaron, it's because there's been all these movies with Marvel. It's not just, oh man, did you see Iron Man? Man, Iron Man, and there's all the word of mouth. It's not that there was one thing that had a five to eight year lasting impact. It was there were 20 things over the span of five to eight years that kind of kept repeating. Yes. The only one I would say maybe had it is Frozen. Yeah. But I think you kind of had to have kids. Yeah. I mean, Frozen's definitely the closest we've gotten a classic Disney movie from Aladdin, Lion King. At least in the modern area. In the modern area. Mm-hmm. It is a little bit of shame. It'd be nice to recapture that magic again, but I, it's one of those things like where we are with streaming and internet and just word of mouth is so instantaneous and gets your attention and then goes by like, and there's so much content out there now. It, it's tough. That's a lot of it is there is so much content and there's a lot of good content. Everything can be curated and tailored to just your tastes. So you're not really as exposed to stuff outside of what your social media and your algorithms are curating for you. You're not just randomly flicking on TV and just skimming around to see what's on and you end up watching something that you probably wouldn't have seen otherwise. Yeah, right. There's a lot less of that discovery. There's a lot less monoculture that happens nowadays where like, Everybody is watching the same four channels on TV, seeing the same shows, and therefore seeing the same commercials, the same movie trailers, and therefore watching more of the same shows and more of the same movies, right? There's just less of that. Or like, what are the 10 movies available at Blockbuster? Yeah, correct. On the new releases. Yeah, exactly. Because even then, like, you would wait weeks sometimes to like see a movie from Blockbuster because it would keep getting checked out. Now everything is just instantaneous and you just hit the button and play. One final thought I I had with Danielle saying that to Heather. It reminds me of the scene in Gravity Falls when Stan is trying to scare those kids. Trick or treat! What can I do for you? Oh no! No! 
candy now? What's the matter with you kids? That was the scariest thing you've ever seen, right? Oh, we've been watching horror movies since we were like two years old. Yeah, we're not scared. Toward the end, there's a scene where they're ripping into Heather when they're starting to lose it. And they say, oh, we're going to go find this witch. We found all this weird stuff and we're going to take it. Was there ever a scene where Heather like took one of the figurines? Uh, Maybe it was lost in the edit. I remember it bothering me the first time that they say, oh, I'm going to take the figurine, which in any other horror movie would be the instigating thing is that like, oh, you disturbed the burial ground. You took the figurine. But I don't remember her taking it. So I don't know what that was about. The closest thing I can think of is they actually knocked down the pile of rocks at one point, but she like fixes it. Yeah. Right. And that was Mike. That wasn't her. Yeah, that wasn't her. Yeah. That just bothered me. Sorry. That's a teeny thing. (laughs) (laughs) To jump into the franchise. So as far as transmedia, which was just such a big thing in the early 2000s with every big movie trying to get every corner of pop culture covered, right? There was a comic book one shot put out by Oni Press in July of 99 for this movie. There were two spinoff novels titled The Secret Confessions of Rustin Parr and Blair Witch Graveyard Shift that were released the next year. There was a young adult novel series following Heather's younger sister that was published between 2000 and 2001. There was a three-volume PC game released in the year 2000, Rustin Parr, The Legend of Coffin Rock, and The Ellie Kedward Tale. And boy, oh boy, just fucking Google image those because they look like some Resident Evil 1 fucking nonsense. So I played the Rustin Parr one, the first one, and it really is a clone of the first Resident Evil. Yeah, there's legitimately a giant stick Wendigo monster. One of the chapters (laughs) is set during the Civil War. I saw a screenshot where there was a fucking eye-patched Nazi commander-looking dude a Shaolin monk character, and then some, like, British explorer man, all standing in what appeared to be a laboratory. Yeah. What the fuck is going on with this game? All I know is the first one you play is this woman named Doc Holliday, by the way. Yeah. She's, like, dispatched to Burkittsville by, like, the Spook House, which is sort of just the BRPD from Hellboy. That's basically kind of what they are. They're, like, these paranormal, like, officers of the government. It's her being dispatched to, like, go after the Legend of the Blair Witch and, and Rustin Parr and all that. So, yeah. And most of the screenshots are of her with two fucking handguns just blood blasting everything. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck was this? Yeah, it, I remember it being kind of a clone of both Resident Evil and Lara Croft Tomb Raider, like the first yeah. Tomb Raider. There was recently, in 2019, another video game that came out that was a survival horror game. Famously, too, there was also a scooby-doo parody special that aired on cartoon network halloween night of 1999 that was pretty fucking good i remember watching that and being like (laughs) what is this fucking weird found footage scooby-doo movie it was called like the scooby-doo project and then you have the new metal classic (laughs) book of shadows last summer after the crowds left Five strangers returned to the woods to uncover the truth. But one of them has a secret that will unlock the curse. Now, if you don't believe in the Blair Witch, then why the hell did you bother to come? I thought the movie was cool. This fall, 
Just in time for Halloween, the witch is back. <laughs> On October 27th, forget everything you've heard. Forget everything you've seen. Because this time, the truth is scarier than fiction. <laughs> A brutal murder in the Black Hills discovered today. In the past year, the Black Hills area has been overrun with movie fans wanting to get a glimpse of where the Blair Witch Project was filmed. So, I'll <laughs> say this. I did not revisit the 2016 movie that I'll talk about in a second briefly. I did re-watch this one while I was cooking dinner the other night. Oh, hell yeah. Because I saw this fucking years ago probably just a few years after it came out. This was another, like, I'm at my grandparents' house. They have fucking Skinamax. It's 2.30 in the morning. Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2 comes on, and it says it has violence, language, sexual content, and nudity. So I was like, cool, that's the one. <laughs> so this movie released the following year, literally a fucking calendar year later. They threw this movie out. It was Artisan wanting to do a sequel immediately to capture the fucking buzz. But all the creative team, the whole Haxon Films team was like, yo, we're not at all fucking ready to start developing a sequel. And so Artisan was like, eh, fuck it. We have the rights to this now. So cool. We're going to go ahead and get started. So in December, literally just four or five months later, they started working on this fucking movie. They hire Joe Berlinger to direct it and co-write it. This guy is a documentarian who has come up on the show because he directed Brothers Keeper and he'd co-directed all three of the Paradise Lost documentaries about the West Memphis Three. That's where I know that name. Okay. Uh-huh. I knew that was familiar. Yeah. He also directed Metallica, Some Kind of Monster, which regardless of how you feel about Metallica, that's a really fucking interesting and solid documentary about how that band was a fucking shit show and how they got that album together. He also did a bunch of docu-series on conversations with serial killers, too, I saw. He's done a lot of true crime doc stuff. That's part of why they hired him was because he had put out these two really acclaimed true crime documentaries. And so they were like, okay, A you can play around with the idea of this found footage, true crime, blah, blah, blah thing and make something out of that. What's interesting, I forgot so much of this shit. There's a lot of this movie that just sucks. That's really hacky, <laughs> bad. This was a psychological thriller that some shitty person wrote that got just turned into a Blair Witch sequel. And frankly, it could have been that, and I just didn't see that particular blurb about this movie. But what's interesting is the movie's initial approach is, okay, here's Burkittsville in the wake of Blair Witch Project. Yeah, that's the one thing I do remember about this, is it's very meta. How has it changed the town? How are all the like people responding to it? So it's very much about how... It's become a destination town, and there's people that are doing, like, Blair Witch tours, and, oh, here's Blair Witch souvenirs, get all your bullshit, right? And how there's this whole fucking cottage industry 
of tourism built around the area now and the legend and all this bullshit, right? So all of that stuff is really interesting and actually kind of fucking works in that meta sense. There's also a lot of this criticism of lazy media consumption and how just so many people watch this movie and hook, line, and sinker completely thought all this was real and didn't bother to research any of it. Didn't even bother to like sit through the credits to see at the end of the credits of Blair Witch it says none of this shit's real, right? So Berlinger like shot this kind of interesting meta thing about all these fans getting together and this other documentary team shooting a documentary about the phenomenon of Blair Witch and how it's affected the town. And they're all supposed to then kind of be fucking weirdly psychologically influenced by the like draw and the allure of the whole fucking legend, right? And just how people who kind of sick in the head, kind of looking for like various outlets are all drawn to this thing naturally and kind of all get different things of what they're looking for out of it in different ways, right? Well, all of that cool, interesting meta shit was kind of shot to the side because the studio was like, okay, shoot some extra violent scenes that we're going to put in as flashbacks, chop up all this police interrogation shit you're going to have at the end is like this crash to earth sobering you all committed a bunch of murders and now we have to like deal with that IRL kind of thing it just becomes this kind of goofy shitty oh it was all in their heads the whole time they actually did do all these bad things the whole time right they added in all this fucking modern rock and new metal throughout the entire thing so I looked at the soundtrack the soundtrack kind of rocks by the way (laughs) it's such a weird you have like P.O.D. You have Sleeves on Dope, you have Marilyn Manson, you have Project A6, you have Nickelback, but then you have Rob Zombie, System of a Down, At the Drive-In. Yeah, Queens of the Stone Age. It's such a fucking on-the-nose moment, but there's the scene where they're all together the first night, all these different random people. There's the girl who's actually into Wicca. And there's, like, a goth girl who's, like, there to fucking smoke and party. And there's the douchey guy. But are they, like, the 2000 movie versions of them? Oh, it's very (laughs) much those stereotypes, right? It's the, like, intellectual documentarian couple. And it's all them just cutting loose and partying and doing drugs and drinking. And, of course, on the nose, the entire time, it's just blasting fucking Queens of the Stone Age feel-good hit of the summer. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I kind of enjoyed revisiting this movie for like how fucking derided it is because (laughs) there were clearly a lot of really interesting meta things that Berlinger set out to do with the movie that just didn't fucking do it for Patreon. We should do a commentary. Oh, we fucking could. It's (laughs) ridiculous, honestly. 
And so that brings us to like the most recent thing. So back in 2013, VHS 2, the anthology, was being shown at Sundance, right? Eduardo Sanchez was there because he did a segment. And then Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett were there because they also did a segment. So these are the guys who did You're Next, The Guest, the like most recent Godzilla versus Kong movies. They approached Myrick and Sanchez at Sundance and were like, yo, why have there been no Blair Witch sequels? And they were kind of like, eh, various reasons, and eh, we can't really talk about it. And so then a couple months later, they were contacted by Lionsgate, who was like, come up to the office and let's talk. And so they were basically pitched by Lionsgate on this concept that they had for a new movie. It was kind of a soft reboot. It was definitely a sequel. It was kind of a reimagining, kind of taking shit a little bit further, right? They had this basic idea of what they wanted to do. And they basically said, like, look, can you guys do something with this? So they reworked a little bit of the entire initial premise, added some characters, added some story elements. They really, on the download, shot the thing in spring of 2015 in Canada, kept the entire thing totally under wraps until San Diego Comic-Con 2016. There had been all this marketing for a couple of weeks about like, oh yeah, their new movie, The Woods, is going to be debuting at Comic-Con. And most people were like, okay, sure, a new horror movie, whatever. And then they get there and it's, uh... Actually, this is called Blair Witch, and here you go, here's the movie, and people are like, what the fuck? Legend said there's been a curse on these woods. Do you believe in the stories about the Blair Witch? Oh my god. Oh, they're everywhere. What was that? So it kind of caught a lot of people off guard. There was definitely one or two people I remember online who had really fucking guessed what was going on before it happened. And of course, were like proven right and got a lot of, you know, internet points for that shit. But it was kind of this big splashy moment at Comic-Con that year where it was like, holy shit, there's a new Blair Witch movie. And apparently it's really fucking good. It comes out in September of that year and is just it's kind of middling. It's fine. Kind of like how we all were when we saw the, this one. They take the found footage idea to the next <coughs> level on, from a technical standpoint, but then they do some dumb, again, Lauren, to your point of what's the intention behind this? Do we buy this? Of I have a drone and we're going to put the drone up in the sky so we can like see our way out of the woods. There's like drone footage in this fucking movie. Ugh. It kind of picks up with Heather Donahue's it's like supposed to be her younger brother, but this is a younger brother who would not have even been born when the original movie came out because these are all teenagers in this one. This is mm-hmm. other 30 year olds, right? He is obsessed with trying to figure out what actually happened to her. He finds this viral video on YouTube that supposedly is some Blair Witch shit where like he swears he sees her in the video. So they like go to Maryland They track down the kids who supposedly recovered this video, and they all go out in the woods together. And then it becomes a lot of the same scares, but kind of amped up. Now it's not just something shaking the tent. 
they're outside of the tent running around what's happening. All of a sudden, the tent is just whooshed up into the air, never to be seen again. That's 2015 now, man. You got to amp up the scares. Yeah, like a tree picks somebody up and rips them in half. You do kind of see a Blair Witch in it very briefly, spoiler alert, and it's kind of just this stretchy, rubbery CGI, Wendigo, tree, monster thing, whatever. But there's lots of time fuckery, the sun never rises, and they like lose track of two or three people in their party, and then they come back a few minutes later and like, where have you guys been? Oh, it's been like a week, where have you been? Oh no. (laughs) There's a lot of that kind of shit. Aliens. Yeah. I remember it being, okay, it's fine, you know? I would still be very curious and open to what they supposedly are working on now, which is some kind of Blair Witch TV project that the entire like original directors and all the original creative team are gearing up to do. Apparently, this was announced back in 2017. Dot, dot, dot. Who the fuck knows where all that is now? Mm-hmm. That was something we're like, I think I'm open to that idea. Ultimately, despite me still being meh on this movie, have always been meh on this movie, I'm still really open to seeing more of this story, of this lore, of this world, continue fleshing out what the fuck the Blair Witch legend is, right? Yeah. I would totally welcome more stuff in this just for shit's sake. Yeah, I'd agree with you. Well, especially if the original creative team is involved to kind of give them a chance to prove that, yes, they do have filmmaking talent. Because I do think there is a huge element of right place, right time, good ideas with marketing, kind of lightning in a bottle stuff. But I do also think, you know, you don't want to sell the team themselves short Yeah, and to say, like, all those things happen at the right time, but also they did the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it would be really cool if the original team was involved, too. Yeah. Well, and you're right. They got up and did the thing. Uh-huh. We could sit here and critique it all day long, but they took a couple thousand and turned it literally into hundreds of millions of dollars. So And yep. 35 pages and made it work. Yeah. yeah. And something that forever has a massive pop culture impact, period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, cool. yeah, fun shit. So that's Blair Witch. That's Urban Legends. That's Halloween 2023. Thank you so much, Lauren, for joining us this year. I am disappointed that you guys never talked about the movie Urban Legend. I think we kind of jokingly made that a point that we weren't going to talk about the movie (laughs) Urban Legend or Urban Legends 2 Final Cut. We were going to make it our very backup, oh shit, if one of these episodes fell through. But yes, we are aware that Urban Legend, the slasher, exists. We will eventually cover it. We probably should cover Scream first before we cover Urban Legend. But uh, yes, we, we are aware of it. Yeah. But yes, thank you, Lauren, so much for joining us this year for our Halloween episode. We were glad to have you. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think this is my second Halloween episode, so yeah. it's an honor. Yeah, because you yeah. run the Hocus Pocus episode, too. So yeah, we are Watch Dare Horror Movie Podcast. Happy Halloween, everyone. Yeah. You can check us out at all the podcatchers, Apple, Stitcher, or no, Stitcher doesn't exist, Apple, Google, Podchaser, <laughs> Spotify, etc. Please continue to rate review us, especially on Apple, Spotify, Good Pods, Podchaser. That's where we get most of our reviews from. Five stars, please. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash watch if you dare. Only $5 a month gets you uh, access to over a dozen hours of bonus content at this point and other content that's coming. We have commentary tracks for movies. We used to do that on our main show. We've moved that to our Patreon. 
Uh, we also have lists where we talk about you know various favorite lists for Aaron and I that are appropriate to what we covered here on the yeah. main show. We just discussed favorite Halloween episodes of non-horror TV shows, and that yeah. was a fucking blast to talk through. Yep. And then, of course, we do TV series. We've done two TV series, Gravity Falls and The Haunting of a Hill House, so far. So yeah, please go check out our Patreon. Please consider donating to us. Please spread the word if you already donate. We would love to get a lot more patrons on there so we can open up new levels of involvement for you guys. Like get t-shirts, maybe open up a pledge level to where you guys can help us pick our next topics. Some movies that you guys want us to cover that we haven't covered yet. Like Urban Legend. Like Urban Legend. <laughs> the slasher that isn't just a cash-in from Scream. God, <laughs> um, if we ever actually did that movie, we would have to talk about Jared Leto. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, but last time we talked about Jared Leto, he got butchered in American Psycho, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> but uh, yeah, also, please check out our Spotify music playlist, especially with it being Halloween season. It is full of spooky tunes for you guys. And speaking of music, shout-outs to your little brother. Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, uh, he gives us the bumps in the end of each episode, especially our special season of Spoop uh, October bumps. You can get all his music at Party Gator, Possums, Big Clown, all on Bandcamp. Consider uh, donating to him, throwing him a few bucks, get some good music in return. We are at Watch of Dare on Twitter and Facebook, like usual. Anything else, Aaron? Am I missing anything? Uh, no, I think that's it. So I guess we're good to go i think we're good to get off so all right i'm gonna go ahead and hit stop and uh i just need you all to like stay on hold oh shit all right i think we just lost lauren what yeah um fuck it looks like i think we're gonna have to record all this over again what everything had to be my way and this is where we've ended up and it's all because of me that we're here now hungry and cold and hunted, and desperately needing to breathe. I love you, Mom and Dad. I'm so sorry. What is that? I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them. I'm going to die on this podcast.